Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hello, this is Ron Burgundy, and you are listening to my voice, which commands trust and respect. Guess what? My podcast is back, and that's a win for everyone. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you probably already know the deal. Each week, I bring you hard-hitting journalism and also light entertainment. I contain multitudes. Find the Ron Burgundy Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here at the home studio, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, Friday interview edition. I had my old pal Dan Bush in here, everybody. Uh, Dan is someone I've known for quite a while, sort of off and on through the years, through various uh, film crew jobs on commercials and music videos. Uh, Dan has sort of done a variety of things over the years on film sets, uh, but is a writer and director. And that's uh, one of the reasons I had him in here, because Dan has made four films. Uh, he made a movie called The Signal, uh, an anthology horror film, which he directed uh, one-third of. And that's where he made his name. The Signal did quite well and uh, has a nice cult following. And he has also made films called The Reconstruction of William Zero and a movie called The Vault and a movie uh, hopefully soon to be out that he has completed called The Dark Red, which I know he's really excited about. And Dan is a... Cool guy. He is a scrappy. Uh, I can make a movie for almost zero dollars, dude. And that's uh, really something to admire because making a movie is super hard. And Dan is doing that on the reg. And I can't wait to see The Dark Red. It's supposed to be really good. And uh, we talked about Escape from New York, uh, one of my favorite films. Uh, Dan is sort of a sci-fi horror genre guy. Uh, I mean, he's a lover of all kinds of movies, but he definitely loves these and big fan of John Carpenter, and so am I. So we had a great, great time talking about Escape from New York, the classic film from 1981. So here we go, everyone, with Dan Bush on Escape from New York. Where Are you from Atlanta? I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, so. like you did all your growing up there? Uh, yeah, I left there when I was about um, – I guess I left there to go to school – to college? Uh, yeah, to college. So I went down to USC in Columbia, South Carolina for uh-huh. the first two years, and then I transferred back to my home state to Chapel Hill, uh-huh. UNC, because it was uh, way more affordable. And, right. You know, and so I couldn't – for some reason, they didn't let me in on the first round when I got out of high school. Oh, really? But then college at USC, like I was – I don't know. I had really good teachers in high school, uh-huh. badass teachers in high school, and – um mentors and stuff and they they taught me how to write they taught me how to do they taught me structure they taught me really like screenwriting stuff not or? that okay. but um Just good so, writing. but when i got to usc i did i jumped in my first 
film class at USC in Columbia, South Carolina, was this guy named Berman, who was an old uh, a, a, a film critic, and uh-huh. he was teaching the screenwriting class. And for his first like semester assignment, you had to actually write a screenplay. Wow. You had to actually complete a screenplay. A feature? Yeah. Wow. Straight out the bat. And so- What was yours? Uh, it was this and movie. And how bad was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, it had some really cool political uh, overtones. Uh-huh. It was it was about these feral cats. Okay. <laughs> so um, I can't remember the name of it. I think it was called The Feral Cat. Okay. But I was very inspired by Watership Down. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Um, I see. When I was a kid, I saw that way too. It was, you know, it scared the shit out of me when yeah. I was a little kid. Uh, but so I made a movie about alley cats because I found out that these alley cats have all these um, – I never thought I'd be talking about this. <laughs> my first screenplay ever. Um, but yeah, these alley cats have these interesting, like in London and stuff, they have these um, these societies, mm-hmm. these sort of collectives where they, they have a group scent. And, and when oh, you, wow. if you're a new cat coming in. Mm-hmm. And so I had these cats that were like the possers, which were like the cats from the family that had a cushy life that had yeah. they were pets. And these two cats, their house burned down and they had to hit the streets. So is the idea it would in, be animated? In, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was, this was uh, eighty nine. All right, how old are you? Forty eight. Yeah, same, same, same age. Yeah, um, I've met you. I don't. I'm sure you don't remember, but I met you. I believe for the very first time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you were a scenic painter on <laughs> the Buster Rhymes video. Give me some mo. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I th- did. We, is that where we met? Yep, that's the first yeah, time I met was. you because yeah. I was working with Vince uh, on art department on that one. Okay, yeah, yeah, and I remember just walking through that big warehouse wherever that was down, and I guess it was Sonoya. Yeah, and you were scenic painting, and yeah. I was pretty green in art department, so I, I was just like, "Wow, scenic painter!" That's we awesome. were, yeah, and I, w- I rose up the ranks of that. See, because to get through college, I was house painting. Oh, okay. So I was painting houses, and I started my little house painting company, and I nice. was like making my way through. And then uh, after college, I moved to Folly Beach, and I was like, "Oh, nice!" And, and, I, and there, I met uh, um, Sally Rowe. Yeah, um, and she was nice enough to hire me in the art department on a. Um, so she got you in, huh? It was uh, caught in the crossfire. Uh-huh. Uh, was was Franz? What's the guy's name? Um, was it a movie? Dennis Franz is that his name? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, he was in like a made-for-TV movie, and uh-huh. so it was my first movie set experience. And she was lucky. She was nice enough and kind enough to hire me to man tell because she great. was like, "Oh, you can paint." Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, I can she's paint. the best." And I was, I'm a very fast painter. I can paint really damn fast. So yeah. I was like, "Okay," and I was able to knock out some sets for her. That's awesome. But I rose through the ranks, a lot of set dressing and different things in the art department, and I, I, it it culminated with me. Uh, I was the lead scenic or the scenic charge, as they call it. I guess I don't know if that's what they call it anymore. But I was the like the lead scenic painter on Road Trip. Oh, sure. Which was shot here. And, yeah. Um, that's when there wasn't a ton of movie action going on here. No, but That was I, back in the old days when a movie would, you know, a few right. times a year. Right. But yeah, that was Todd Phillips' first jam. Yeah. And uh, so I got, you know, I got to work beside Todd Phillips quite a bit. And yeah, when he was green. He had made a movie about, called Hated. I saw that. You know, Gigi you know, Allen Doc. Yeah, Gigi Allen Doc. <laughs> yeah. And so I was picking his brain about Hated. And he was friends with some guys from Charlotte uh, in a band called Anti-Scene, I think. Uh-huh. That's the name of the band. I got that right. Um, anyway, so it was a cool first experience. But yeah. I got to where I was like – towards the end of it, I had worked 30 days straight, 16 hours a day, uh-huh. not a break because I was trying really hard to just, you know, fill in all the gaps where yeah. they were, you know. And um, I uh, and I, re- I think I went up to – who was – it was a big producer on that. Um, 
um, on road trip. Yeah. I've forgotten his name right now, but I went up to him after, um, towards the end of the show. And I was like, I have the screenplay that I had written. And I was like, you know, I might as well introduce myself and let you see my screen. Yeah, man. That's how you do it. And, uh, and I realized that he, and he was so sweet about it. He was, he was very, you know, nice about it, but he was, I realized he's not going to read my screen. I was covered in paint. Right. You know? I was just like, this is, and I just, and I, and I had broken out in hives cause I had, it was so stressed out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm not a scenic painter. I'm a, I'm a goddamn director. Yeah. That's what I went to school for. That's what I've been trying to do, since, you I was, do. since I was like 12 years old. Uh-huh. I've been making movies since I was 12 years old. Yeah. You know, with camcorders. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, I got to go do this. Yeah. That's so, what you got to do. You got to draw the line in the sand. Yeah. And you got to put your script in people's hands. Like, yeah. I met with Scott Armstrong, the writer mm-hmm. of Road Trip. Yeah, he's great. I went down to set and I was like, I want to be a mm-hmm. screenwriter. Would you, do you have a few minutes? And he right. spent lunch with me one day yeah. talking to me. Yeah. I handed my script to Kate Hudson one time uh-huh. on a Black Crows music video <laughs> set out in L.A., uh-huh. and I saw her walk away and go sit down and read it for 10 minutes. That's awesome. And that, you know, I'm sure it went in the trash right after that. And I, you know, I but get— But, like, you got to make those bold moves sometimes. Yeah. I, and I get solicitations a lot. I get in my inbox, I'll get—because my email is out there, you know, sure. on IMDb, but I'll get solicitations and— I try to I try to crack them open and look at them if That's I'm not nice. too busy. But um, pay it forward. Yeah. So let's talk about um, sure. your filmmaking career. Uh, the signal put you on the map, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen that. That was, I think, kind of kicked off the mini trend of the. Um, I guess what is it called? An anthology film or more yeah. of a? I think that, I think so. I. I I, I would like to think that the signal probably was it's one of the first ones. Right, was what inspired VH. You know, later filmmakers to be like, oh, let's let's do VHS and let's yeah. do Southbound. And, let's do and obviously stuff like – and movies I'm sure you loved growing up like the Twilight Zone movie mm. and Creep Show. Like there was a foundation for that. Yeah. But it was cool to see it come back in like a new, right. modern, fresh form, which was The Signal. Yeah. And well, see, and we, we were always – you know, I came out of film school and ever since then all of my stuff – I wrote some commercial – you know, formulaic screenplays. Yeah. Um, to try to, I've always had like one 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 angle that's like write the formulaic commercial screenplay and see how far you can get in development right. in Hollywood. And then in the meantime, I'm like, I've always been like, well, what is what is film? Right. What is what is this medium? Is it is it really closer to theater and narrative storytelling, uh-huh. or is it more like dance, or more like you painting, or like what you know? What is it? What is, is more rhythmic? Who knows? And uh-huh. so it's just a cool medium, and, and there's little done with it outside of like now with TV. There's more you know experimentation and stuff. Yeah. But it seemed like at the time it was like okay, you have one uh, protagonist on a transformative arc yeah. for a hundred, you know, an hour and a half, and then you know, and there's some transformation, and they come to glean some information about the universe and then and, yeah. and change themselves. It's interesting and how like, much is that you film can... <laughs> can do more than that. It can do different things. Yeah, but it can also <laughs> do so many things. I think it's so cool on two hands how much you can do within that strict mm-hmm. formula right. and then also people that have dared to, you know, bust up yeah. that formula some. That's totally true. And so we had – so we were working t- with uh, Rob Nixon at Push Push Theater and Tim Habiger and um, we came up with this idea. I'd had this idea in college of like – Let's give all these filmmakers the same script and see what they do with the same script, mm-hmm. same actors, whatever. And so we developed this uh, program called da- Dailies, which is now being relaunched, I think, here at Atlanta. Oh, cool. Um, over at uh, Drama Inc. And I think Brent Dye and Scott Poitras and Claire Bronson are doing it. Uh-huh. Um, so if filmmakers want to get involved in a new 
community of of you know filmic expression they can they can go there but oh, cool. we at the time we were like okay let's make this into a thing let's challenge each other and, mm-hmm. and i had seen the five obstructions um and i was like okay let's uh and that movie is like uh, i think it was Lars Van Trier gave his favorite director um who he thought who he, it seemed like he felt like his favorite director had had gotten slack or something uh-huh. over the years so he he was, he invented this movie where he's like, I'm going to give you, f- you're going to make five short films. Oh, Each wow. one, you're going to have an obstruction. Uh-huh. The f- like one of them's like, you have to make a cut every 12 frames. Von Trier is so great, man. <laughs> another one's like, you have to make a movie in another language and in a foreign country. Wow. And an- you know, like obstructions like that. And it's like, I've okay. seen songwriters do stuff like this, like challenge each other with yeah. like, write a song a day for a week or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a cool thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just to get you out of your comfort zone and yeah. get you, you know, get your creative juices flowing mm-hmm. and, um, and limitations make you more creative. Right. So any, anyway, the dailies, long story short, is the dailies was an embrace. We embraced that. And uh-huh. It also was a film community that was developed. And then we ended up making a, a, a sh- um, one of the biggest dailies challenges was an exquisite corpse challenge where you start <laughs> a story and pass it off to the ne- next guy and pass it oh, off to the next guy. Wow. And then uh, Alex Motlog and Jacob Gentry took uh-huh. that uh, idea and they thought, well, this could be a feature. Uh-huh. You know, in the in the anthology way, right? And so they came to me and Bruckner, David Bruckner, and they were like, uh-huh. "Let's let's just take this thing that you guys began, some of the themes that are running through this yeah. exquisite corpse, and let's just do a feature." Yeah, because we're already making forty minute sections each, so let's just make it a add feature. those together. You've got yeah. a feature. Yeah, and that's cool. And so we leaned into like, like a organic. Rashomon like uh, perspective driven uh-huh. three perspectives on the same sort of yeah. scenario kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it worked out. Yeah, it was it was it was it was very successful, you know, and it's because it's become sort of like a a cult, yeah, you know, a for cult sure movie. So I've been in touch with Bruckner about getting him on at some point. He's going to do it, I think. Yeah, he has to do it. I saw his last uh, the one on Netflix, Ritual. Yeah, yeah. I liked it. Yeah, it's, I thought it was good. Yeah, I love those kind of movies. Yeah, it's it, I, I you know I, I th- it's cool. It's like Deliverance. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like For these sure. guys who have no ritual, no real ceremony in their lives. They don't have any sense of meaning or belonging yeah. except to each other. And that is tested in the darkest of woods. <laughs> yeah. And I love just the idea. The pr- in a primal environment. You know? I, I love the um, I love the cabin in the woods thing and the, mm-hmm. the just people in the woods. It's a very economical, efficient way to make a movie on the down low yeah. and cheap. Right. Um Although, I, I mean, I'm not sure what his budget was on that. It was obviously in a little bit of a higher bracket Yeah, than well, me going out on the weekends. He was still <laughs> making magic happen with nothing. Still scrapping. Yeah, and he was in, you know, he was in the forest in Romania with limited daylight. And, oh, wow. You know, he was, he was hiking up mountains with, with know, gear. With gear. <laughs> That's cool. So, like, uh, even though he might have had more shoot days than any of us have had on a movie uh-huh. to date, it was still, like, half days, I'm sure. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so your next film, um, I think I have these in the right order, was uh, The Reconstruction of William Zero, right? Yep. Didn't that come next? Yep. And that, for people listening, you've heard us talk about uh, Connell, my boss, who uh, is the one who originally started Stuff You Should Know and commissioned all these podcasts. And, like, I owe my career to him. And he's even been on Movie Crush briefly to talk about um, – what film was it? The uh, – oh, I can't think Celebration. Of it. <laughs> no. He loves that one. And not The Shining. He wasn't uh-huh. on as a full guest. He just came in for one little segment to uh-huh. talk about the movie Hanky Hunka. 
Um, the director? Oh, the one where Mike, the guy's— Michael Haneke? Yeah, well, the, the one where he's his, getting these mysterious videotapes in the mail. Yeah, he, yeah. I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, uh, people yeah. listening know that that's Connell. And Connell is the star of your movie. He is, yes. And he's a good actor. He Connell is not only responsible for a lot of our careers here in Atlanta, uh-huh. um, and not only is he a, a fantastic, has he a fantastic business mind, but he's supremely talented yeah. as an actor and a musician. I know, dude. He's he's doing music now. Right. Now he well, he's always he, done music. He, you remember the band Adam back in twenty years ago? Well, I, through Chris, him, Chris DeVoe yeah. and Connell were in, were in Adam, and and he's he's doing music he's, again though, which is great. Oh yeah, like new stuff. Yeah, have you heard it? Yeah. It's so cool. It is. So and I'm good. like, I'm mad. I'm like, where do you have the time? Yeah. And I'm mad at your talents, your myriad talents. I, I don't understand how he maybe he maybe he really is a clone of himself, like he was in my movie. <laughs> but <laughs> I went to the uh, to the. I don't know if that was the premiere or just the cast and crew screening at the the uh, plaza. Oh, cool! You went to that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was there, and uh, yeah. I loved it. I thought it was good. He uh, was there. <clears throat> were there five of him eventually? Three. Okay. Why don't I was thinking three. five? He played three yeah. versions of himself, two clones. Yeah. So and there again, it's like <clears throat> here I am. It's it's very audacious and very yeah, it is. <laughs> it's very ambitious to think. Oh, let's play with structure on my right. first real, but you know, direct directorial debut by myself. Right. Again, we play with structure in the signal quite a bit, but it's like let's play with structure and, you know, there's this Aristotle idea of the catharsis with the protagonist and uh-huh. he goes through the transformation and then the audience relates to that and somehow gleams some um, you know insights into their own life by being moved by what the protagonist goes through right that's, that's the cathartic thing and that's the structure of all the movies that mm-hmm. we and all the all the all the stories that we're used to in, in sort of pop culture and um I I was like well if we're gonna play with cloning which is an identity fracture mm-hmm. who am I really right what does it mean to be me? You know, then I have to do that with catharsis too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the whole thing was this sort of experiment of can I transfer? You know, if an identity is fractured into three pieces, can mm-hmm. I transfer that catharsis from one clone to another clone? Yeah. You know, if if what it means to be a human being is now fractured because of genetics, right? And our understanding of genetics, then the whole entire idea uh, and structure of you know. Of that Arist- 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 Aristotelian, you know, uh-huh. structure has to also be fractured. So I right. took that on. Yeah, man. Which was stupid. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think I so. I mean, it was stupid. It was it was ambitious. Very but it, ambitious. Um, What's your budget on that? Can you talk about that stuff? Yeah, or? sure. Now, yeah, it, it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah, man, you achieved a lot. Thanks, man. And it was because Connell, like, we spent a lot of time and we worked through yeah. the character traits and we did a lot of stuff where I mean, he's. Connell's already bringing so much to the table, but it's like acting as yourself in a different set of circumstances, mm-hmm. usually when it's at its best. Yeah. So he, he his channel was to like find the circumstances and let his body and his thought patterns bend to those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, it was subtle. It was subtle, but it was, yeah. It was there, but like I think it was subtle in like the best way because <laughs> if you think the obvious thing to do for – a cloning movie to be like we need to really differentiate these characters yeah. in such a way that like the biggest dumb shit in the audience will always know what's going on <laughs> and you know yeah. have one that's like sort of like a me myself and Irene or something yeah. where they're so disparate but the shifts were really subtle between the characters I think and I worked Karen Freed and uh, worked on that with me uh-huh. and, and my wife Caroline 
uh, Dieter. So the two of them were working on color schemes uh-huh. for the different guys so that there was also sort of an unconscious, like right. one was more soft blues and right. light browns, the innocent one. Did you shoot it any differently? Like, uh, No, I just was leaning into perspective. Okay. So right. when I was shooting Connell as the innocent new clone who was trying to figure out who he was and mm-hmm. why he was here and was fascinated with the Amy Simons character, Jewel, yeah. Jules, you know, a lot of times it would be like a, a, a lot of steady, stabilized stuff that uh-huh. was slow and meticulous and moving in on him. Right. And when we would go to Edward, the monster, yeah. the um, – the misanthrope, he, we would go handheld a lot of times, yeah. much more close up, and you can almost hear his heart beating. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Again, were, that's pretty subtle stuff too, though. Yeah. Um, but that's like like the fabric of the movie that is like the unconscious fabric of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. You always want to, I mean, I, I think that the first question I have is whose perspective are we aligning the audience with? Mm-hmm. So... For all films that you made? Yeah, yeah. I've gotten there. I've, I've arrived at this place. Of, and that's what the, the signal was all. Yeah. You know, we're aligning with her and then we're aligning with, you know, right. the monster for, for the middle part. And yeah. Then, um, but it's like, is it an omniscient perspective? Mm-hmm. You know, are we are we cutting to something that um, or, or are we with, you know, I always think about the taxi driver model where it's like in taxi driver, we are with Travis Bickle. Mm-hmm. We are listening to this, um, you know, this droning sort of voiceover yeah. that's lulling us into this um, alignment with him. Mm-hmm. And and we think, yeah, you know, the the world is a nasty place and it's yeah. it's, it's it's a lonely place. And, it's, and it's, New York's it's, a garbage city it's, yeah, full and, of the worst people. <laughs> and someday the rain will wash all the scum off the streets. And then, yeah. and then, they, and then he cuts to Sybil Shepherd. Uh-huh. And it's, it's not an omniscient perspective. It's more like from her point uh-huh. of view. And all of a sudden, the guy that we were aligned with is the craziest guy in the world. Yeah. He's fucked up. And it's like, wait yeah. a minute. I was just aligned with that guy. That's I was just on, on on board with him. And now I'm – so you're questioning yourself. I never really thought about that. He does sort of bring yeah. you on board yeah. uh, onto his side. And then all of a sudden – Yeah. You're like, oh, my God. He's dangerous. Yeah. 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 And it's just a fun thing to do because you were aligned with him. And you're like – and it and it makes you – in the most subtle unconscious ways makes you go, oh, well – what within me uh-huh. allowed me to align with a monster? Right. The monster's always closer to us than we think. Yeah. It's always within, not without. We're always we're always hunting monsters outside, uh-huh. but they're always right next to us. Or, you know, yeah. The, so. um, and then your next film was The Vault. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. Is that the order that you shot them or the order they came out? Because so, you kind of were was, shooting both of those, right? Or were you? No, I was confused because I actually shot The Dark Red – first and got 90, okay. 90% of that in the can. I think I remember that. And while we were editing that while I was in post on that and I still had some pickups to do and mm-hmm. some things to do because that was extremely low budget. Yeah. Uh, the vault came through and we were yeah, you know and I needed to go like put everything down. And So that was a script you had had and you were seeking financing for the vault? The vault was originally called The Trust. Okay. And it um, – it was something that was in play for, I don't know, maybe as much as 10 years, something that we had wow. gone out with and had different people attached at different times. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, you know, and there's this idea that whenever you're in development hell on a project, mm-hmm. you 
the best strategy is to go make another movie by any means necessary with, yeah. your, with your friends here in Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, while we were doing that, um, Connell had this idea of like, uh, let's create a company called Hive Mind, mm-hmm. and let's give let's empower filmmakers in an auteur kind of way to go make their own movies. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have any money, but to offset that, instead of the classic model where you give. Um, you know, you get investors and the investors have first position plus right. 20% return on their investment. And right. then after that, there's a waterfall of producer points. And so any cast members or crew members that have points comes out of that. And it's all very, you know, muddy. Yeah. Instead of that, this is like, no, if I give a point to Victoria Warren, who's my DP, mm-hmm. or Karen Freed, my costume designer, right? if I give them a point, say, or five points or whatever, it is on par with the, the investors. Mm-hmm. So everybody's equal. Everybody's first money out. Right. Um, and so it sort of inspires them to be, have ownership of the movie. Yeah. And I think it worked on, on Dark Red in a really nice way. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, sure. I can send you a link if you're, please, if you're interested. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll have like- a, we'll have a homecoming soon. We were just in London with it for a big European premiere, but we'll have a, oh, cool. we'll have a homecoming pretty soon, maybe even right around Christmas, I think, or even Halloween if we can get it together that quickly. But Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell everyone what the premise of Dark Red is because it's great and I don't want to mess it up. Oh, yeah. Uh, a young woman um, is uh, is put into she's, – she's put into a mental ward mm-hmm. claiming that her, uh, her baby was taken, mm-hmm. her newborn baby was taken by forced cesarean section uh, by a secret society – for the baby's supernatural blood and the powers that it brings. Right. And we are um, – so we're in sort of an unreliable narrator situation. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out is she in, is she fucking crazy? Right. Or is this really – That's such a great setup. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. But back to the vault, uh, you got uh, – you were able to land James Franco for that. Mm-hmm. Was that a big part of how the financing came together? It was – yeah. It, it, it's – I found that with budgets that go beyond a million bucks mm-hmm. and even $500,000, everybody's looking to offset that mm-hmm. risk right. with an A-list actor. And they're, it's crazy. They're, um, they'll, wow. they'll fight really hard to get, you know, somebody that's really not really not gettable uh-huh. unless you have an inroad to them or right. unless there's, the script is just amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and, even then it's tough. Yeah, and even if you have the agencies, you know, UTA and CAA and some other great agencies sort of behind you and backing you and giving you good people, mm-hmm. um, it's always hard to impress the investors enough so that they feel like they're going to offset their risk. But it's always a gamble. None of it, none of it's real. Yeah. Like they're just hoping that – I mean, sure, you get Brad Pitt, you're going to make your money back probably. Right. But that's that's like 0.00001% right. of the – um, the rest of the movies out there are fighting to get something to offset the cost. Yeah. And with independent films, it's harder than ever um, these days. But so with The Vault, um, the producers were able to uh, r- reach out to James and Scott Hayes, who I had wanted to work with oh, for sure. a long, long time. Uh-huh. He's close with James, and I think he was instrumental in, in leaning into into Mr. Franco and saying, hey, you know, Dan's – Dan's a good filmmaker. This yeah. is going to be cool. Um, and he yeah. said yes. And he said yes. That's great. We had him for three days. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, it's so and, funny how so- something <clears throat> this can mean so much 
to a filmmaker is three days out of someone else's life. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, the, the the imbalance of power. <laughs> he was fun to work with. He was really he's quite brilliant. He was able to, you know, he had done a the. Was it General Hospital? He'd done a soap opera yeah, for yeah. quite a while. He's always doing interesting things. Yeah. And he was – but maybe because of that experience. But there was one one good story was I, I we, we had him for three days. So I had to rewrite the script so that we kind of kept him contained the whole time. I couldn't yeah. move him around too much for loss of – you know, uh, setups would take too long. Yeah. And we wouldn't get to – so at one point I, I went in and I said, hey, you know, we were – scheduled that day to shoot like just a couple pages uh-huh. of this one thing and I said look we're, we're in this room let's it's a stage play essentially it's uh-huh. lit uh, let's just run it all let's just do all of these scenes these scenes and I was like how do you feel about doing all these scenes the scenes that we're going to do tomorrow right let's just run it like a stage play and he said can I see the because I had had um, my assistant print out the take all the business out of it so it was just the dialogue like oh, a play uh-huh. and, I, and he said well what do you got and I, I said here it is without the stuff right so you can just look at it and he said okay let me look at it and then I went over and talked to um, Andrew Shulkin my DP and uh-huh. we were looking at some lighting and I came back literally five minutes later and I was like what do you think and he's like let's do it I've got it nice I was like what do you mean you got it and he's like not only had he memorized it all oh man like literally because he was doing 80 pages a day in, in soap opera land yeah, or something crazy. Sure. He had memorized it all. He had made choices, uh-huh. like acting choices about tactics. And, yeah. And then, you know, and then he went back to reading his book. That's pretty cool, huh? It, it was it was, it was was a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and the vault is, you know, it's it's weird. I, you know, I, 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 I don't mean to be, to be too disparaging of it. But it ended up being so far from what I had initially written and conceived. Oh, really? How so? Well, well talk about the premise. It's a bank heist where yeah. it goes wrong but in a very unpredictable way. Right. So – I don't want to give away too much. And it's a genre bender. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the um, – there's some decisions. I always say backstory is only effective if it's informing a major decision that the protagonist is making mm-hmm. or that the main character that the lead is making. So, but we had built all of this backstory in to understand why they were robbing the bank, and mm-hmm. and and it was actually tying into the forces that were down below beneath the bank, yeah, in a very clear way, in a very personal way. And we ended up with uh, about sixteen days to shoot mm-hmm. the whole movie, um, which normally would be fine in a contained space, but I think there was there was a lot of things that were being poorly run on the production side. Yeah. It was out of my control and the it, it, the machine just wasn't grooving. It wasn't well yeah. greased machine and it was just it kept stopping. Um and you know, we shot up in Alpharetta and it was incredibly hot, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was hot as balls and um but the, back to the thing is like there's this backstory that was informing everything that was happening up to an ending point that was mm-hmm. very meaningful. And it became a loyalty play. Oh, okay. It was very cool. Yeah. And so the, the the function of horror and sci-fi, I think, at its best is to put you know, like the human condition on steroids. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, what does it mean to be a human being? Well, well let's subject them to this terror or <laughs> yeah, to this exactly. you know hyper you know human situation. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Though. And um, and so I think that I was working really hard uh, to get the vault. To fun- and it was called The Trust, which is a play on words. It was uh-huh. a movie about trust. To play on those levels. Um, and uh, in the end, I think it's a fun and cool movie. But it, and, and I love some of the sequences that mm-hmm. we've, we generated and created. And 
Scott was um, incredible in it, and I thought Francesca was great in it, and uh, of course Taryn Manning was just yeah, incredible. That's a good get too. Oh man, it was the cast was stunning. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I just I, I guess the the final product that we ended up with uh, because of the concessions we had made, it didn't for me add up to uh-huh. what I had originally wanted. Now I can you know. Boohoo! I got to make a movie with James Franco. Make, you know, <laughs> so no, but I but, mean, an artist can always look yeah. back at their criticize their own work. Yeah, that's fair. So, uh, well, making a movie is really hard. Uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to get the money. Mm-hmm. It's hard to actually do the job, and it's hard to finish it. Right. And you've done that four times, um, which is a huge accomplishment. And I feel like Thanks. you're, you're just going to keep making movies, aren't you? I'd uh, <laughs> be so sad. I made a didn't. deal with the universe a while back that I wasn't going to give up. And I'm okay. just going to keep on trying. I yeah. mean, I've been doing it since I was 15 years old, literally making movies on the camcorder. And, um, you know, so it's been a long haul of just, you know. Uh, and, yeah, I, I guess I have redefined my idea of what success is because, mm-hmm. you know, it's your your, uh, your your dreams lose a lot of grandeur coming true. Yeah. So and success is also being a good father and a good husband. Yeah. And, a, and you know. Yeah. As you get a little older, you realize that it's it's sort of a more complete you. Yeah. And not just like the thing that you do. Yeah. For and, and fun or money. with the kids, you know, for the first time in my in my life, I'm I'm like, oh wait, uh, do I really want to like kill myself on right on uh, something that is has all the odds against me. To you know, to make a movie that is maybe not as meaningful as it could have been because of the concessions we had to make, just to pull it off. Right. And the answer is no. I don't want to fucking do that. <laughs> but you're. But you're. <laughs> I don't want to. I mean, I literally. I probably aged. Uh, by the time I was done with the vault, I literally had like th- went th- like thirty whole hour days. Wow. Which I hadn't done since I was a twenties or something. Yeah, that's tough. To get the edit in, and th- it was just unnecessarily stressful. Yeah. And it took a toll on me, and I, I, it caused some health issues. And since then, I've been really trying to, like, you know, focus on the kids and be present and, right. you know, live a, an actual life. But you're still going to make a movie, right? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm still going to make movies. Yeah. Well, this but, uh, but, I, but I've gotten to, to where I've, a better way, I've, I've gotten pick, more picky. Like, there was a wonderful movie that was on my plate recently, and it was a cool idea, and it was a, it was a wonderful script, and I doctored the script, and it was, it was like two guys in an office. Uh-huh. The whole movie was like two guys, an office, an egg timer, and a gun. Oh, wow. It was the whole movie, and it was... That should be the title. It was beautiful, yeah. It was beautiful. <laughs> uh, but it just got to the point where it wasn't... It, I could tell that the investor and in, in the way the movie was going was too controlled. There wasn't enough trust in me. Right. And yet at the same time, they were going to be leaning on me to pull all my favors. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Because it's going to be another shit show. And yeah, I can it's tell already. Bad. So I've, I've learned my lessons. I'm sure your gut at this point is pretty accurate as to like what, you're, what experience you're in for. But then there's the dark red, which throughout all of the vault and all of these other processes mm-hmm. was this fun, like inspired cool journey with friends yeah it was hard as hell yeah but it's a different kind of hard when everybody's like you know what we're gonna we're gonna figure this out it's a cool experience to work on a film set like yeah i I talk about it a lot on the show but it's you know it's very familial and it's like summer camp Mm -hmm. in some ways and it's it's the bonding experience like no other Mm -hmm. um so i see why i see the allure i miss it sometimes Mm -hmm. i almost made one of those hive mind movies you did yeah I, i think i'd I spoke to you briefly about um, 
That's right. About that stuff. That's right. I, I ended up that. writing a thriller. Yeah. Which I'd never, that was an exercise in screenwriting because I'd always written comedy. And we talked about working on it together at one point. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Josh was producing it. Yeah. Um, not Josh Clark, but obviously Josh. Uh, Wilcox? Wilcox. Yeah. And uh, his wife was going to be in it. And I got Janet oh, Varney awesome. signed on to be in it. So what, where did, what's. You know, Connell came <laughs> back and said, um, I think I think at this point the budgets were down to like 150 grand or something, mm-hmm. and he said we've got half the money. Mm-hmm. We, we I think you should get started with mm-hmm. 70 grand and we'll or whatever and we'll get the the rest. Right. And that was my sniff test where I was like, oh man, well, dude, it's if, already so tight. Like I just uh-huh. think that that's not a good idea. Well, the the I think the dark red might might pull us out. Of, oh yeah. It seems like yeah we're. We've got a distribution deal here in the U.S. We've got one in the in the U.K. Oh, that's great! And um, I'm getting you know, and we're gonna. I think we're gonna be able to justify going and going back into the rabbit hole again. So oh, cool! That's great. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you the script. <laughs> I don't have time to direct it anymore. Although it's funny now, I don't even know if it can be made without seeming like a ripoff because it was a a period piece um, set at a lighthouse, a thriller. Mm-hmm. And now That's this right. new now. Eggers movie is coming out mm-hmm. um, about the lighthouse, called The Lighthouse. Right. And I saw the trailer. And I was like, oh, man. Right. I don't That's, even think that I, looks with Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah that I don't looks even cool. think I can do this movie anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, Connell and I wrote a, a, uh, a lighthouse werewolf movie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lighthouses are – I mean, I'm surprised it, was, it took this It was long. called the, the Secret History of the United States – Oh yeah, and it's uh, during the, the Revolutionary War, the the, the Brits bring over uh, um, this what is the first weapon of mass destruction, which is a werewolf. It's a it's it's a it's a bunch of um, so, uh, soldiers that they were going to implant into the into the uh, the rebel army uh-huh. that are werewolves. That's great. And then all of a sudden they turn, <laughs> and this one lighthouse, but they shipwreck, uh-huh. and so this one guy who's you know the only guy that's between them and the, uh-huh. and the, and the United States. That's a great idea. <laughs> it's awesome. The lighthouse conceit. I'm surprised it took that long for this. I mean, I'm sure there's been other lighthouse movies, mm-hmm. but it's such a great setting mm-hmm. because you don't have to have a lot of people. It looks great on camera. Mm-hmm. You're isolated. That's the whole point of running a lighthouse is you're right. kind of out there alone. Yeah. So it's a really kind of smart thing to do. Uh, and I'm it's surprised a it fantastic setting and a wonderful conceit and condition. Well, too. I've got a lighthouse for you down <laughs> awesome. uh, off the coast of Georgia. And uh, they were game. Which one is it? Sapelo Island. Yeah. yeah. Which is basically almost uninhabited. Oh, it, that's it, great. It would be really cool. That's fantastic. Yeah, it would be cool. I also have another genre <laughs> idea um, about that you should direct that I haven't, <laughs> that I haven't written about a group of uh, Confederate soldiers um, one night happen upon like an abandoned plantation where they stop over to spend the night, mm-hmm. which is full of um, slave ghosts. That take their revenge. That's awesome. <laughs> it's like, why hasn't anyone done that? Tarantino should make that movie. That's fantastic. He kind of it's kind of a mashup. Uh, where can people see all your films? Um, let's see. Uh, definitely on iTunes, and The Vault is on Netflix. Okay. Um, William Zero used to be on Netflix. I don't think it is anymore. Yeah, it was. The Signal is is also. I think you can buy it on. I, just, I haven't checked in a while. To I'm be sure honest you can get with the you. signal everywhere, right? Probably, yeah. But it's not. It used to be on Netflix, I think, and it's not anymore. So. Okay. And the dark red is yet to be. The dark red is yet to be unleashed. All right. So, well, Q, let me know when that happens, and yeah. I'll push it out. Q1, I think, in 2020. So, awesome. Yeah. 
Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy! But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. All right, let's talk about Escape from New York. Okay. Um, A little background. Uh, Dan wanted to do The Thing, Taken. You wanted to do Jacob's Ladder, Taken, Mm -hmm. uh, by... uh, Someone you know. I actually Randy, know everyone. Craig Randy, Johnson yeah. took the thing. Yep. <laughs> These are all like your friends are taking your movies. <laughs> Randy took Jacob's Ladder. Uh-huh. Um, what was the other one you named? There was one I more. Clipped I clipped through like. it. The Graduate. Oh, The Graduate? Um, Natasha yeah. Halevi did that one. Um, and uh, I looked. I was like, maybe Miller's Crossing. Huh? Miller's Crossing, Ben Acker. <laughs> There's so many. And I was like, God, all my favorite movies. Because it's impossible to pick a, a sure. favorite. What you have to do, I think, my process of elimination was, what was my first actual movie crush? Yeah. What was my first actual, like. That's kind of the idea. Oh, yeah. This is the This is the one that. Were, that like, and I have several movie crushes. Uh-huh. But what's the first one? Like, and I'm very impressionable. So, for instance, when The Outsiders came out and I watched it, oh yeah, I like I wanted to be a greaser so damn bad. <laughs> it was pretty great. I I literally went and smoked my first cigarette after really? watching that movie. <laughs> I was I stole one from my brother and I went out in the woods. And <laughs> <laughs> played Puff Pony Boy in the woods. Yeah, I was playing Pony Boy. <laughs> well, uh, Escape from New York, uh, 1981. It was, uh, and I've talked about this on the show before. It was my first R-rated movie, ah. so that's a big deal. Um, yeah. I went over. I was a little church boy, so I was not allowed to see certain things, and I right. was also a very good boy. I was not seeking uh, cigarettes, so I called my mom and I said, "We're over at Roger's house, mm-hmm. uh, and they want to watch Escape from New York on VHS. Can I watch it?" And I asked for permission, and she said, "Yes," because you asked. You can you can watch it. <coughs> and, so you were nine. Eight? Well, no, I mean I'm your age, so this was. It was out in 81, I guess, mm-hmm. on VHS uh, and 82-ish. So, you're so like I was 11, 10 or 11. Okay. 10 or 11, depending yeah. on my birthday. Right. Uh, and when it, when in the year this was. Like the perfect age, in other words, to watch yeah. Escape from New York for the first time. That's awesome. <laughs> the 80s were fantastic. Did you in see it way. in the theater? Um, no, I didn't. I saw it on HBO oh, okay. a couple of years. Because I had seen – I actually um, – I had, I had very formative years where I moved to Maryland from like 79 to 81. Uh-huh. And while I was in Maryland, I saw a ton of – my father for some reason was sneaking my brother and I into these movies. Like I saw Alien in uh-huh. 79. Is your brother older or younger? He's two years older. But still, we weren't supposed to be in there. Like yeah. my dad would we – could, we could go in with the parent. And then, yeah. And then the parent would – and then my dad would be like, okay, I'll pick you guys up Oh, later. and he would leave? Yeah, because he didn't care. <laughs> right. Um, but so, yeah, um, I had seen Blade Runner in the theater. Yeah. I had seen Alien in the theater at Man. like the age of eight. That's great. It's fucked up. And scary. Yeah. 
See, my brother is three years older. He would go, I remember at least three different occasions where he would be able to go see a movie Mm -hmm. and then he would come home and we would sit up and he would tell me all about it for (laughs) almost like the running time of the film. It wouldn't be a five-minute conversation. He would walk me through every single thing he could remember. Really? And he did that with Alien and Apocalypse Now and one other one. How did he tell you about Apocalypse? (laughs) You know, he just kind of walked me through the story. (laughs) And then Charlie, don't surf. And then... Kind of. (laughs) You know how it is when you're kids. Yeah. Um, But Escape from New York was such a big movie for me, and I've seen it many, many times over Mm -hmm. the years. But um, last night was the first time in a while Mm -hmm. that I'd seen it. Um, The great John Carpenter, obviously, Mm -hmm. who uh, was able to make this movie because of the success of Halloween in large part. It did a little bit of research. And it's not like he was persona non grata, but he hadn't had a hit like Halloween to afford him, you know. Mm-hmm. Not carte blanche, but just a good budget. Um, and I also saw where they fought against Kurt Russell. And mm-hmm. you're thinking, what? <coughs> How is that possible? He is Snake Plissken. What are you kidding me? But at the time, he had done all those Disney kid mm-hmm. movies. And then his adult movies he had done before this was uh, the comedy Used Cars. Remember mm-hmm. that one? No, I don't remember that one. It was, I think, a, an early Robert Zemeckis comedy. Really? With Jack Warden and Kurt Russell about these, like, battling used car salesmen. <laughs> Good movie for what it was. Uh-huh. But he, he had, this is his first movie as a badass. Right. And it's hard to think of a they time didn't want where him. he they, wasn't a badass. They went to a bunch of other badasses like Clint Eastwood at one point, I think, and yeah. Charles Bronson. And Chuck Norris to, was another Chuck one. Chuck Norris, right, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine Chuck Norris, like, completely screwing no. up this movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to even think about it. No, you can't <clears throat> because Snake Plissken just <clears throat> exists for, like, especially for dudes like us mm-hmm. in such a, like, place in our mind. Yeah, it was – growing up, it was, like, Snake Plissken and Kyle Reese – were like two of the badass characters that I just yeah. was like, ah, oh, I've got to be that guy for the rest of my life for Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wanted to be Snake Plissken. I never was able to be, but uh-huh. I, I looked for eye patches and stuff at one point, and really? it was always the hair. There was always a stumbling block. Is like, <laughs> do I put on a bad wig? And the answer should have been yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you ever do it for Halloween? Um, no, I never. I've done Kyle Reese a bunch, but I've never done oh, really? Snake. Well, it's not Snakes. too late. I know you still put a lot of effort into Halloween. Obviously, I do. You guys. It's more for the kids now, but yeah, yeah. it's fun. But we, yeah, because in my, you know, with your wife being a costume, a costumer, and a costume designer, uh-huh. and owning a costume warehouse, like, yeah, yeah that's go, great. Go nuts. <laughs> I might have to tap you guys this year. Yeah, because I'm dressing up again. Nice. Um, so the, the first thing you know when this movie starts out uh, that you notice is the score <clears throat> and that sort of. You know, movies with a ticking clock, as you know, is is a very nice mm-hmm. uh, way to ramp up the suspense. And this movie literally has a ticking clock. And then that score, mm-hmm. that pulsing score, kind of serves as that timekeeper in some ways. And it's not like the Things score, which is right. filled with dread. This is almost like it, it just it, – it so perfectly illustrates or speaks to like, uh, you know, a dystopian – it's it's more of a dystopian mm-hmm. dread than it is like a yeah. mo- monster movie dread. Like oh, I totally agree. Do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. just because it's cool too. Uh-huh. It's like exciting and cool, and it's not scary, right? But it's like um, I don't know. That music is one of the yeah. As soon as you see it, and as soon as you f- see those helicopters flying over, yeah. And then um, I, it was Jamie Lee Curtis who did the voiceover. Oh, really? The, yeah, she's the one. Did that's not like, know that. Nineteen eighty four. 
crimes increased by 400%. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so it's They such built a, a wall around the yeah. full that's, he, setup. She didn't get credit, but that's, that's, wow, that's Jamie that. Lee Curtis. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I did know that James Cameron was the matte painter, mm-hmm. which is a pretty cool little which fact. Those, and those matte paintings are gorgeous. Oh, they look so good. Yeah. Um, but it's such a brilliantly <laughs> simple setup, you know, mm-hmm. and especially at the time. And, and you remember in the early 80s, like – and there's still <clears throat> crime, obviously, but crime mm-hmm. back then was mm-hmm. – that's the only thing you heard, heard about because right. there weren't terrorists yet and there wasn't – people weren't talking about climate change. or right. It was just the crime rate. Right. Is getting murdered and robbed. Yeah, and it was this big fear tactic or something. Oh, yeah. So for 1981, uh-huh. this is the perfect right. idea. It's like crime has gotten so out of hand they just made – they sent all the criminals to Manhattan <laughs> yeah. forever. Yeah. Like you don't leave. There's no parole. Right. And it's just brilliant. You check in, but you don't check out. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the one line, um, oh, you meet the Duke once and that's it. You're dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Uh, it, yeah, it was uh, – the music immediately sucks you in and um, just creating character. I always say like success is when people want to dress up as your characters for Halloween. Yeah. That's success. Oh, but, for sure. So that's John Carpenter. He just these iconic yeah. images and characters that – yeah, Michael Myers. Um, yeah, and um, I think it's. Do you want to get into like the like the the structure of the movie? Like, yeah, we can get into to all of it. I've got notes on all this crap. Yeah, but, let's, um, let's do it. Um, a little more on the setup. I mean, not only was the Manhattan thing brilliant, the uh, the president has been kidnapped, right, and then dropped in the middle of that prison, and there's a ticking clock, right. And, like, there's so many stakes. Like, Snake mm-hmm. is going to die in 22 hours. Right. The the war is going to happen unless they don't. he can get back. Right. And it's just, like, this ridiculous amount of stakes are right. piled on. Yeah, it's just incredible. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's like – and, you know, I've heard people compare it to a Western and yeah. to a noir sure. before. And I'm like, it's, it is got – but that's, like, the classic Western is, like, ticking clock, uh-huh. um, a grizzled veteran – has to go out into the world and either, you know, stop the bad guys or, or, yeah. or rescue the kidnapped victim like the searchers. Right. But I think John Carpenter, I think he grew up on John Ford movies and, yeah. How, and Howard Hawks movies. Yeah. I think that that's um, – but there's all these weird – there's these weird connections between Escape from New York and like Westerns. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of weird crossovers, like the eye patch. The only other sort of hero to wear an eye, and right, Snake's an anti-hero, but to wear an eye patch is John Wayne. Um, oh yeah, was that Big Jake? Some there's is it Big Jake or True Grit? True Grit. Yeah, yeah. So, and then he, he's holstered up, sort of cowboy style. Big Jake is the other reference because all through Big Jake, the, every time they meet John Wayne, they say, "I thought you were dead." Oh really? Yeah. Is that stolen directly from that? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. That's homage. So, yeah, and uh, but just these really simple, clean, you know, Western-ish conventions yeah. that, that he's like, yeah, ticking, ticking time bomb. Um, and but what I think that he did that was so cool and timely uh-huh. was all of those Westerns, they tend the, – the convention is that they tend to have some heroic figure who has – who is on his own mm-hmm. in a wasteland. Yeah. Much like Escape from New York. They're in some – you know, forbidden zone mm-hmm. with hostiles and so forth, and against got, everybody, against everybody, yeah. with on a ticking clock with not much time left, and they, and in those, it's always like frontier justice. It's mm-hmm. it's sort of this idea of these 
these guys who are inherently have this moral compass and they're good. Yeah. Um, and it's them against the world. Yeah. Um, and they're heroic in that way. And then those were all, those were sort of channeled into these urban Westerns, mm-hmm. like Dirty Harry and Death Wish. Yeah. Uh, and again, the same thing. It's just, it's just they're cop. They're like cop movies. They're pro, they're like pro authority cop movies. Yeah. And um, what I love that Carpenter did was he he did like an inverted western, yeah. an inverted urban western. And by that I mean he's got so so Snake isn't a hero. He's an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. He's he was once a war hero, but right. But now he's like a hardened criminal. Yeah. Um, also. He cast uh, Levon Cleef, yeah. who is in all of the – All he, the westerns. All, yeah, all the westerns, especially the, the spaghetti westerns and Sergio Leone movies. But yeah. he's – like he, there's a reason like – he cast Levon Cleef as the as the the, 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 power, the authority, the guy who's running the prison. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. So he's – this guy is notoriously a bad guy in, uh-huh. in, in, in all the pop cult in everybody's mind when they see his face. They're like, that guy is the bad guy. Yeah. And he's the guy, he's the guy in charge. So he's, he's the force. He's the cop. Yeah. He's the sheriff. The sheriff is innately bad. And the guy who's the outlaw yeah. is the hero. And, yeah. I, and I love I really that. I thought about that. Yeah. And so. the, uh, the other thing too, I've never thought about any of this Western stuff, but now that you mention it, the um, cabbie, Ernest Borgnine, mm-hmm. that is a very Western thing. To be like, oh, you're Billy the Kid. Yeah. Like there's always like one guy in town right. who's enamored of this sort of legend of this character and wants to help them out. Yeah. And he also – that's another thing about Snake is because he's got this sort of mythical – this he's, his his um, reputation precedes him everywhere he goes. Yeah. Because he's – I guess he was like a Robin Hood figure or something, I was think. Was he? I don't know. There's don't... a whole sequence. I don't know if you've seen the Marta sequence. I have, yeah. Where Shot he, here in Atlanta. Yeah. Because yeah. he used it because Marta was brand new <clears> and <throat> it looked like futuristic, I guess. At the time it was. But um, it was – the idea, which I never fully realized, is that he has robbed – he's a former war hero mm-hmm. who has robbed the Federal Reserve. Right. But was the idea that he was going to – Give that to the poor? I don't. I don't think so. Or but did he rob the Federal Reserve because he's clearly anti the man? I, a lot of people, a lot of reviews are like, "Oh, he's he runs into Brain, and Brain's the one who sold him out in that robbery with Fresno Bob." <laughs> with Fresno <laughs> Bob. But I don't think that Brain sold him out in that robbery. I think that that was a previous robbery. I think he's been on a. Okay. I think he's been on a string of robberies, and he's been wanted for a long time. And he's because the people are so dissatisfied with this authoritarian police state that the United States has become. There's all these expressions of like, okay, the United States has become a police state. Uh There's, there's, there's terrorists in the United States Mm -hmm. who take the, who crash the president's plane. Right. The liberation army. Yeah. And I think that there's this, this world where, you know, all the criminals are quarantined to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's almost like a fascist state is right. what he's implying. And it's all very capitalist driven. For and sure. I, and, I, and I, you know, at the time I was, I was still a kid, but I was starting to warm up to some of these weird punk rock ideas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, <laughs> and I, I just love that Carpenter did, flipped all that hero shit on its head. Yeah. It's like, so I don't know if he's Robin Hood, but he's certainly sticking it to the man. Like in those cop movies, those, those like um, – those – Urban Western cop movies like Dirty Harry. It's always the rogue cop. The cop is is gone out. He's 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 enacting his own justice. Yeah. Um, against the will of the l- sort of liberal um, 
system mm-hmm. that cares about rights. Right. <laughs> and yeah. even in one that one Dirty Harry movie, was it Sudden Impact? Or there's one where he's like, I have rights. And right. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking back now with Clint Eastwood, it all sort of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and then in this one, it's the opposite. So then you have, you have uh, Kurt Russell, who's playing Clint Eastwood-ish character, this yeah. badass who's, who, who is against that entire, and this time the authority isn't some liberal authority that sort of is working for human rights or right. prisoner right or whatever criminal right what it's there's no they're not working for fairness and he's he's up against sort of a fascist police state yeah and so, i i never stuff like that flew way over my head when i was a kid when i was a kid i didn't know about any of that shit but, but as i over the years i'm like it, oh yeah yeah a couple of days ago i was i was definitely um noticed all i mean it's all throughout the movie snake at the beginning i don't care about your president i don't care about your war get a new president <laughs> yeah and at, and in the, at the end, mm-hmm. he's constantly expressing this point of view mm-hmm. of this un, being under the thumb of this regime, basically. Because mm-hmm. at the end, he – well, first of all, he obviously switches the tape, which is the mm-hmm. ultimate move. Right. <laughs> but he um, he gets a moment. He asks for a moment with him. Mm-hmm. And he just says, what about all these people that died trying to save you? Right. Like that's what he cares about. And the president is also a coward. A huge coward. So he's – you know. Yeah. It was before they made movies where the president was in any way a badass. Right. Because that became a big thing. Right. He's just such a <clears throat> doughy lump in this movie, which makes uh-huh. that switch at the end you right. know, so powerful. That's another – and I've, I read it another tidbit that I guess Donald Pleasance, who plays the president, yeah. and I don't think he has a name. They call him the president the whole movie. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. But he uh, – he, I think – he. so I guess he was a World War II veteran. Oh, really? With the British. Uh-huh. Some British forces, and I think he was a prisoner of war in Japan. Oh wow! Um, and apparently, he drew on that experience when he was dealing with the Duke. Oh, interesting! And at the end, when he's like, "Yeah, hey, number one, <laughs> yeah, hey, number one," <laughs> great. And he's yeah. and he, such a nice scene. And I think he brought the idea of like put a wig on, yeah, to, so that. That's great. I love that I th- part. But apparently he was drawing from all these experiences that he had had in his like own life. had to be humiliated as he, a captive. And dehumanized and yeah. 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 And the casting <clears throat> of Pleasance too is a bit of a a bit of a turn because he, you know, he played a lot of kooks and mm-hmm. menacing type characters. And so to have him play the president was right. an interesting choice. I well, think. he had played, what, Loomis in? Yeah. In Halloween. In Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, you know, you have this great setup and that ticking clock right off the bat on his arm at yeah. all times. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be able to make that that eagle clock bracelet <laughs> <Yeah>. so bad. <laughs> yeah. Like everything about this movie was just like the coolest shit I'd ever seen. Uh-huh. But I, when watching a couple of days ago, so much of it holds up, I think. I mean, it's dated in a few ways because it just has to be. But mm-hmm. um, the sets still look great. Mm-hmm. And it's back when they were making real movies like – the the big fight scene with uh, in the ring with the the pro wrestler guy yeah um, that looks <clears throat> fucking fantastic and mm-hmm. he's got two hundred dudes in there in costume right and fires lit and like it's it's and a, that's like Grand Central Station supposed to be I think or? yeah but it's St Louis's version <clears throat> right they, they apparently looked everywhere for uh, what they called like the worst city in America yeah and they like across the tracks in St Louis is where they found it. All these bombed out buildings and stuff. They had had a fire in St. Louis. Yeah. And it was just sort of still like that. Yeah. But 
just real movie making, you know. Yeah. There's no CG going on. And there's no money. Like I think he made it for five or six million dollars. Yeah. For what you get on screen. So like he yeah, so let's talk about stretching your buck yeah, to create for sure. this futuristic world. And he know? gets this great cast, yeah. Ernest Borgnine, Academy right. Award winner. All these character actors. Uh Adrian Barbeau, who was his wife at uh-huh. the time, I think, and for an eleven year old boy, like, you know. The sexiest woman alive, as far as you're <laughs> yeah. concerned. Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, and Harry Dean Stanton, who right. I didn't have an appreciation for at the time, right? But would go on to you know. I had seen him in Alien greats. when I was a kid, and I yeah. recognized him because I it was, I'd seen Alien and I'd in the theater, and I and then we moved back from. It was this weird pivotal point in my life, this form of years when I moved back from Maryland to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh-huh. Um, my dad had, we moved to Maryland because my dad he's a chemist and he had a um, a research uh, thing with NIH so uh-huh. we moved there and then when I moved back like I started back in new schools and everything was in the beginning of my true adolescence uh-huh. and my you know the end of you know the beginning of puberty and all of right. these things were swimming in my head and so sure. <laughs> a hero like Kurt Russell to show up with coiffed hair and a, an eye patch and a yeah uh, uh, beautiful gun and I, I don't know it was just oh it was also it, cool Adrian Barbeau. Yeah, man. Um, all of that stuff was just right at the right time for my brain to, yeah. to latch onto it. Right there with you. I feel Absolutely, like it, in a lot yeah. of ways it was a movie made for 11-year-old boys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. And it still kind of is. How old are your kids now? Uh, two and four. Oh, you got a ways to go then. Well, two, almost three. But you, Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> it'll, um, it'll be a little while. But this is going to be a good one to watch one day, I think. Indeed. With the kids. I heard – and I heard some people – I've always heard people like kids these days – some. A lot of the, I guess, some millennials were. I heard them in some podcast. They were tearing up the movie, and the biggest thing they couldn't get around is why do they have big, huge like antenna cell phones, and why do they have? Why is the GPS just a red dot? <laughs> it's a walkie-talkie. Yeah, and they were like, they couldn't understand any of the stuff. And they couldn't yeah. understand how somebody in 1981 could could possibly conceive of the of a few, like. Of the 1997 so, future? Yes. That it so is. maybe John Carpenter <laughs> didn't think, oh, we'll have more than radio waves in the future. Oh, or, sure. You know what I mean? But they were just ca- killing it. And I was like, you guys. Yeah. You're paying just, attention to the wrong you, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing out. Bud. You're watching it wrong. Right. Um, one of the, But see, <clears throat> also, though, there are so many little touches that I think are like if you were to construct a dystopian future where mm-hmm. the crime is up 400%. <laughs> Um, that I didn't really notice before uh, when they're walking Snake in and he's going to be going to prison. They're making all the announcements. Mm-hmm. And I guess – is that Jamie Lee Curtis or mm-hmm. – over the, the loudspeakers and that's stuff? That's her there too, yeah. Oh, OK. And she says, uh, you have the option to be cremated on right. premises. That, I love that. I never I love that. noticed that. Oh, like, yeah. If you don't want to go to the fucking jail, they'll yeah. just fucking take care of you right yeah. there. You can either try to live in this hell yeah. and survive. Uh-huh. Or you can check out. That's right. I never I love it. that. It's such a great line. Yeah. But it's believable. Like that's how it probably would be. Right. In that kind of future. Yeah. And it, and it feels very fascist or something, right? It, it feels does. really. Uh, the other thing too, when I was 11, um, there was no scarier character that I'd ever seen than Romero. Mm-hmm. The, the one that looks oh, like God, the yeah. troll doll. Right. He scared the living shit out of me. And that movie, it like genuinely impacted me. He was so scary for some reason. Because he's so weird. And, and unhinged and like that laugh he did. And he's sort of androgynous. Yeah. And there's a lot of – he's yeah, he's like this terrifying clown. Uh-huh. 
It something. really, really affected me as and a kid. And the way he moved was uh-huh. almost like a a bird or something. Oh, it was brilliant. Like a chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chicken. Yeah. It was Frank insane. Doubleday uh, is the actor. I got to shout him out. He he had played a bunch of crazies back mm-hmm. in the day. He was in Assault uh, yeah. Precinct 13. That's right. And he has daughters now that act. Oh, really? Yeah. Who uh, who were – I'm trying to remember the movies they were in. Nothing super huge, but he passed away a couple of years ago, sadly, from esophageal cancer. But um, I read where Kurt Russell said that his performance really set the tone really on set for everybody when he came in there and started doing that stuff. Everyone's like, okay, like I see what we're doing here. I have a feeling that he was like a true actor's actor or, you know, like he, you know, yeah, that he sort of just would transform one of those actors that becomes possessed Uh in a cool way. Yeah. And I think he was well-trained. I'm not sure though, but I, I think that. He brought this real uh-huh. – I'm surprised he didn't ever get bigger yeah. roles or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I mean he certainly was in a lot of movies, but it, he always played a character sort of like this. But right. this was the, the creme de la creme yeah. of unhinged Because he's the first clowns. guy that you meet <laughs> in New York. Yeah, and remember how calm he is in that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, like you come back in, he dies. Yeah. You try to do this, he dies. And there's no negotiation 19, going on. Yeah. 18, <laughs> oh, God. 17. It's so good. And Lee Van Cleef knows. He's like, all right, we, this guy's fucking yeah. serious. We got to get out of here. Yeah. But yeah. they don't know that they're using uh, – they, the plan is to use the president mm-hmm. as sort of a – A shield. A, to, yeah, a human shield to cross the bridge. Right. To release all the criminals. There's something, <laughs> too, that the, there's, there's a little bit of a weird edit in the movie that I noticed. They're walking – they're walking badass Pliskin down the down the way. Uh huh. Um, this on the way to prison, or yeah, on the way, and the, and that's when you hear the the announcer yeah. saying, "You can be cremated if you don't want to go in." Right. And he's walking along, and all of a sudden, is like, "Wait a minute, stop!" And then he stops and he turns, and you assume that's Lee Van Cleef. I think it is. He's like, "Wait a minute," mm-hmm. he wants to talk to him or whatever, and then it fades to black, and then it cuts to the whole sequence where the president's plane goes down. Oh, I don't think I really noticed that. So in a way, I'm like, shouldn't – I'm sure that they needed to start the movie by introducing – because they cut that deleted scene with him robbing the bank. Right, so which is a long They sequence. probably needed to like go ahead and establish yeah. you know, Snake Plissken and have him do the long perp walk or whatever. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. Um, but somehow, like why did Lee Van Cleef call his name out and have him turn if the president hadn't gone right. down yet? So I feel like that should have happened later. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never really thought to, about that. Yeah, I don't know. Just that was something. sort of backwards, wasn't it? Yeah. I wonder if that was just one of those things where Carpenter didn't have a solve. I, I can only imagine that he didn't, that he was like, yeah. it, it was you know, incumbent upon him to uh-huh. give us <laughs> Kurt Russell right off the bat. It's like, uh, let's fade to black. Right. Maybe that'll solve it. <laughs> yeah. As, anyway, the editor in me is going, oh, wait, that's – Yeah. Why did, why did Lee Van Cleef call his name out? Did you edit all your films? I have, yes. By yourself? Mm, yeah. Interesting. That's the, my favorite part of the whole process. Editing? Yeah. I've always enjoyed it. Yeah. For like shorts and stuff I've made because that's where the movies really – Writing and editing. Comes together. Yeah. Same with me for writing. Anytime you don't have to deal with other people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I see a pattern. <laughs> now that I think about it. Um, um, one of my favorite lines too early on, there's so many kind of great corny lines, is uh, when Snake asks what the deal is like – with the summit, you know, mm-hmm. like, what is this even all about? And Lee Van Cleef just goes, you know anything about nuclear fusion? <laughs> <laughs> and it just shuts down the conversation. <laughs> what is he? He's like, the end, he's talking about the end of mankind, yeah. something you don't give a whole hell of a lot about. 
It's good. It's corny in all the right ways. Yeah. That's the noir shit. Yeah. That conversation they have in there is just full noir. Like the, 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 uh, we talked about the Western aspects, but the, like the noir aspects of this, uh-huh. it's, it's this, this guy who's, one, he's alienated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got all these sort of existential motifs running through it of like what's the meaning? What's the point? Right. What's the – and he's got this hard-boiled, you know, bounty hunter kind of guy or yeah. whatever. Um, but the other thing that's noir about it is there's this – I don't know. It's just it's uh, he's just so hard boiled, and he's uh, those scenes like with Lee Van Cleef when he's we spitballing with him, and yeah, I don't know. I just I just love that shit. Well, and it, it never you're never under the impression that he he cares about even well, being his freedom. Even. He's my first antihero that I ever saw. Yeah, so he's so. my first like he's he's like chaotic neutral. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like even the Wolverine is like chaotic good, right? And this guy is like, no, he's – and that's the noir part. It's like he's he's almost like a Philip Marlowe because he's like – he he's nomadic. Uh-huh. He's, he's isolated and alienated. Mm-hmm. He's um, he's a vet, which is not always – but he's like been through some shit, yeah. you know, um, ex-detective or whatever. Right. And there's, there's no passion. And he's able to move – between worlds, like he can move across a social strata, like he can he can operate in a government, mm-hmm. you know, in a police procedural situation, right, and function in that and manipulate that as well as he can on the streets with criminals, right, right. And that's that's the part of it that was like, oh, this is this feels like a Howard Hawks kind of, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It's interesting. Like th- th- I feel like he doesn't he doesn't care about his freedom. He only he even has the one line, you know, I'm going in either way. Like, yeah, I, I might as well. Might as well. Might as well try. Yeah. Like, you're going to give me guns? Uh-huh. Like, sure. <laughs> but yeah. there is an honor, a weird honor to him because I don't feel like he was – I don't know if he ever was going to double cross because they, they have the line where he's like, you know, before you even think about, you know, mm-hmm. flying off, that's why they inject him. Mm-hmm. But there is a weird maybe former military honor code Yeah, that I don't feel like he's a double crosser. I, I mean, I get the whole impression that he's like – Back to like, okay, it's a failed police state. The United States is entrenched in all of these. They're mired in these foreign wars. Yeah. You know, and it's and, – and I think Carpenter was originally inspired by Watergate. Yeah. And then it took him years to make it and he right. kind of changed some of the things. But but yeah, it, it's it's anti-authoritarian, anti – you know, and, and, and he's, he's – I think Pliskin is this guy who was – got burned – because yeah. he did believe in the system, and he went to war, and he right. tried, and he and he and he he went, you know. And at the time, it was like after Vietnam, and these yeah, it could have been these Rambo. Vets said, yeah, yeah, it could have been Rambo. Um, yeah, uh, the, Ernest Borgnine's setup of his character is one of my favorite setups ever because you know they're in the theater watching uh, the Velvets perform, mm-hmm. and everyone's just sort of it's he's panning across the theater, mm-hmm. and everyone's just sort of sitting there like you know. Half asleep, mm-hmm. and you see Ernest Borgnine having the time of his life <laughs> as as the cabbie. You know, uh-huh. he's, he just stayed in New York, which I don't think ever fully realized 
Because yeah. last night I was like, wait a minute, what did he do right. to get into prison? He never left. He never left. <laughs> he loved his cab so much. <laughs> and he's just happy to be there still, driving his cab. It's true New Yorker. Oh, man, it's so great. Yeah, tr- total true New Yorker. Um, but it's such a good setup. And then – Don't you love that they have that theater thing? Isn't that like a cool oh, – yeah. like you, you're thinking, OK, I'm going into this world and sure there's going to be underground dwellers that are going right. to come out of the sewers. And sure there's going to be weird clans and like warriors-esque. Like, yeah, you know, very warriors-esque. But you don't think, oh, but they're also going to have to entertain themselves. Right. There's also going to be a bunch of like uh-huh. you know, theater guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally, dude. I loved it. I You're was like, like yeah. well, here's what we should do. We right. should put together a little review and just see how it goes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's this theater over there. It's like no one's no yeah. one's using it yeah. except for like the worst things possible in the back rooms. <laughs> you don't want to go down there, Snake. Yeah. <laughs> He's so great. Uh, and then the setup before we meet the Duke even um, – I remember being a kid and hearing the setup of the Duke of New York, mm-hmm. and it was just so scary. And I didn't know who Isaac Hayes was right. at the time. So I just saw this badass with chandeliers on his fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> there's something about those chandeliers. Like, I, there's, I, I feel like Carpenter, like he made these incredibly intentional movies that were like the thing and – you know, Escape from New York. Uh-huh. There's always an undercurrent of comedy. I totally agree. There, there, there's there's stuff that's just so far gone, and he's not apologetic about it. He's just. I think you're right. He's he's not winking at it. It's yeah. just just part of like this. This is a kind of an absurd world, and I think uh-huh. Kurt Russell's in on the joke. Yeah, yeah. And I think the two of them are like just having a good time. I totally. And agree. I think that slowly over the years, I don't know if it was because of the the failure of the thing critically or what, but there's a lot of stuff that happened in his career, and I think. I feel like as his career went on, he he just started having more fun and caring less about making it believable or something. Well, a movie like Big Trouble in Little China uh-huh. certainly uh, backs yeah. up that theory. Yeah, I think he got to that and he's like – I mean he did Starman too, which is yeah. very dramatic. But it, I think he got to a point where he's like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to have fun making yeah. – it, and it culminated with They Live, <laughs> right. which is just full on like I'm going to quit trying to be so serious. Yeah, yeah. There's no way that he put those chandeliers on the car and didn't laugh and say, like, right. that's great. Right. Like, that's hysterical. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, there's no way he put that on and was like, yes, that is badass and that's what the Duke <laughs> of New York would do. Right, right. Yeah, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek for sure. Um, and then we – you know, of course, we meet uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbeau. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, again, with the sets, his set is so great. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the New York Public Library, but it's a big library where he has mm-hmm. manufactured an oil refinery. <laughs> Inside of the library. Yeah, where uh, I guess there's oil maybe under Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. And he's uh, – he's, but that gives him – you know, the whole reason they did that is because he's providing the gas right. for the city. Right. And that's they why he him. has value. They need him. Yeah, they yeah. absolutely need him. <laughs> yeah. Harry Dean Stanton's so good. What a treasure. Yeah. Oh, I was – there's um, – did you – I was going to quiz you. Did, do you watch Stranger Things? Yeah. Did you see season three? Yeah. Quiz did me. You, <laughs> did you spot the the sequence that's a direct homage to Escape from New York? Oh. No, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, but there's a scene when Billy Hargrove, the possessed, uh-huh. the possessed brother, dude, yeah, yeah, the, the, the dick, uh-huh. he turns his headlights on the car and he starts racing towards Nancy Wheeler. Yeah, she has when they're a gun. in the parking lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he's like coming right around. She has the gun and she pulls wow. up the gun and she's like, you know, and then it comes Dude, to the car and comes totally back to her. right. 
It's the bridge sequence. Yeah. With Adrian Barbeau. Oh, man, that's Almost shot for shot. Yeah. Yeah. I I never noticed that. As soon as I saw I was watching Stranger Things, this is before, you know. This came up? Yeah. Uh I was just watching. I was like, Escape from New York. Escape from New York. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had forgotten about that sequence uh, on the bridge. Yeah. That was a really, that really affected me a little more. Did it? Yeah, it was sad. Yeah. She lost her guy. Everybody dies. Everybody dies almost. Except for Snake. And the president. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is a good – I love – I thought there was something so cool too about a uh, – as a kid, I was a sucker for a pistol with a, a scope on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a it Mac really, 10 is what it was, I think. I thought it was a really cool look. Yeah. And the gun – I mean, you know, I'm not a gun guy at all now, but, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a little boy and you're playing cops and robbers and war mm-hmm. and stuff, it's like really cool stuff. And I thought the gun, mm-hmm. that submachine gun with the big silencer on it, that Snake yeah. used was just the coolest the su- thing. The suppressor on oh, it. Oh, my God. Which didn't suppress. The coolest. Yeah. Kind of. I don't know. It was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize. I think Kurt Russell was uh, either dating or married to that, that one lady in the scene where he almost kisses her. Yeah. The one who's hiding from the yeah. underground dwellers. Yeah. I think that was his wife at the time. I didn't recognize her, though. Yeah. I don't it's know. hard to think of Kurt without Goldie. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-Goldie, I guess. Pre-Goldie. Uh, so we finally meet Duke and we finally see Isaac Hayes. And uh, they they sort of have this – this is after a very lo-fi station wagon escape sequence, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. A little bit of like Night of the Living Dead zombie sort of feel. Which part? the With the station wagon when they're all like – beating on the car. Oh, right. And they're coming after him and he hits the dead end. And, and he turns around and backs up through the wall of cars. through the cars, yeah. which is kind of badass. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's definitely a little bit of a horror movie homage. Mm-hmm. But then it's after that that they finally meet uh, the Duke. And Harry Dean Stanton is trying to broker some sort of a... Because I think he believes what he's saying about the limited time with the president. Mm-hmm. You know? And he's trying to broker some sort of a... A detente where they can figure this all out. Right. But, of course, the Duke's not having it. Right. Because he's Isaac Case. <laughs> but that's the thing is like it's, it's another thing of like only Snake could have done that. Only Snake could have walked into a, you know, whether he knew Brain or not. Mm-hmm. Granted, he, he knew Harold from right. back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was his name. Um, Harold. <laughs> yeah, but, but even then, if, with he, if he shows up, he's in New York – why is he here? The president's here and Snake Plissken's here. Everybody knows who Snake Plissken is. So what he says, you know, is trustworthy. Yeah. Like, and that's what Brain and Adrian Barbeau do, or Maggie, or I think her name's Maggie. Yeah. They talk about, they're like, why else would he be here? And like, he's, of course he's making, you know. Right. Yeah. The, the president ain't going to mean a whole lot in a, in, in a few hours here. Yeah. And like, you're bluffing. It's like, no, he's not. Yeah. Yeah, there is – it sort of goes back to the honor thing. Like Snake never feels like a liar. Right. You know, like he can be taken at his word. Right. Or not even that. Not even he has some uh, some ethical stance, but like he seems like the kind of guy that can't be bothered with games and right. lying. Yeah. You and know, and just, if he does have his own moral code, it's – you know, he's certainly there's. I mean, there's weird ambiguity, like when he sees that weird sexual assault happening in the bottom of the theater. Yeah. And granted, he doesn't have time to be a hero. Sure. So he's like, okay, he just turns and he just walks right by it. Yeah, I think he a lot stop of stop and like, why did they even put that in there? Yeah. If they weren't, most movie, Rambo would 
totally kick those guys' asses. Yep. <laughs> no, he would have. I mean, that is the moment in most movies where you mm-hmm. see the the bad guy do something good, right? To sort of you know mm-hmm. tweak that character a little bit. But they were working hard to make it. They were working. They were going out of their way to make it so that he was morally ambiguous. Yeah, and that, that we never knew if he was good or bad, or you know. And it's only at the end totally that they're doing. Like, yeah, yeah. I never really thought about that. Um, the the fight sequence that I was talking about earlier in the ring. Yeah, really like uh, holds up is because I remember a kid thinking that looks real and mm-hmm. brutal. Right. When they're hitting each other with the trash can lids and those spiked uh, baseball bats. Right. But it really felt real last night, too. Yeah, it's cool the way it's not like a karate, you know. Yeah. Like special forces, you know, fight scene. Yeah. Because he is special forces, but real special forces, they don't, you, you know what I mean? Like they maybe can take take a guy down, but they don't do born identity shit I right. don't think you know <laughs> in the movies they do uh, in the movies they do yeah and that's and it's weird that in, the, in our perspective or our perception you know in pop culture of of fight scenes and how Delta Force guys or special you know Green Berets or Rambos of yeah. the world that all in the 80s went straight in that direction all oh, the way through sure. Commando and all that shit uh-huh. but this was still like it's you know it's still like on the edge of the seventies where yeah, street fighting yeah and it was it was just more realistic yeah and apparently you know I read a little bit about that last night Kurt Russell <clears> said <throat> that it was pretty real and right. those bats were pretty heavy right and it did not feel good and that the the dude the the wrestler in real life apparently was having a little bit of fun mm-hmm. you know with this Hollywood guy right sort of beating him down a little bit <laughs> and then the um, I mean did they, did they use real I'm surprised I'd be surprised if they used real wooden bats and didn't get some foam. I don't know, man. These days, like whenever I do that, whenever I have a scene where somebody like, uh-huh. in, in the signal, the guy clearly takes a bat and yeah. t- takes out Justin Wellborn. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, A.J. Bowen takes out Justin Wellborn with a bat and uh-huh. the blood hits the windshield. You know, and it's like we got a we got a Nerf bat, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to match, to double. I don't know. Do they in that movie, they're really like, let's just use the real fucking thing. Maybe. What about <clears throat> as a director, just sidetracking here, what about the choreography of stuff like that? Like, if you've never like the first time you did something like that, mm-hmm. um, what do you go on? Just like I've seen this stuff in movies, and I got to figure out how to do it myself because there's not a school for that. I mean, maybe there is. Well, there's a couple. Of, I got a sort of two pronged answer to that. One is this: the the short answer is what I'm always trying to do is, um, I mean, sometimes when you when you want, you know, like there's there are these things. I got to ask this question when, at the screening of the Dark Red in London couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and it was like are you influenced by John Carpenter they asked me and they said are you influenced by you know these different f- prominent filmmakers that mm-hmm. have their own style and, I, and I, my only answer was well yeah but not necessarily directly I'm not quoting them right but when I close my eyes and I see the movie in my head and I make my shot list out there's a language of cinema that mm-hmm. I grew up with just like in the English language with its words, mm-hmm. there are certain phrases and stuff. There's there's a language, a nonverbal language that's there, mm-hmm. and it's a reservoir of all of the shit that you've ever seen, right? You know, and it just and I try not to overthink it, I, I, and sometimes I look back and go, oh yeah, that that is that shot from Jaws, right? But you don't, it's not necessarily a conscious thing unless it's Stranger Things where it's very intentional. Yeah, like hey, let's do this homage. Yeah, right. Sure. Um, the other thing is especially fight choreography. Um, I like my fights to be sloppy. I don't like them to be, yeah. you know, martial artists 
you know, I like them to be awkward and not – most of my characters haven't fought much before. So they're – Like real fights. Yeah. And You've they're, they're sloppy and yeah. – um, and I, uh, Elizabeth Davidovich is a stunt, uh-huh. uh, a stunt woman here in town. Mm-hmm. She actually does. She's like the most killed walker on Walking Dead. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> and she, uh, I think she's Winona Ryder stunt, stunt double on Stranger oh. Things. But she's um, my stunt uh, coordinator and choreographer. Uh-huh. And watching her work is amazing because we'll get together and we'll get the actors and be like, okay, if you swing this way, uh-huh. and it's all motivated by what you're trying to do. and what right. So I need to get to that door. So I'm trying to get that door and then, okay, he's trying to get that door. So that means that one action will then lead to another action. So the choreography is all built out mm-hmm. of a series of balancing against what just happened. Right. Everything's a reaction. Right. And you don't, you don't just make up a fight. You're like, oh, I'm down here. So the easiest way to get out of this is to keep rolling backwards. Yeah. Or shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so she's instrumental in helping me figure out the, the, the actual physics uh-huh. balanced with a character's motivations to make something that feels, you know, honest. Yeah. I think people would be surprised if um, you've never been on film sets, how much discussion there is about the, the physical room that you're in and where the characters need to be and how are they mm-hmm. going to do it rather than – I think if people think about directing a lot of times and on a movie set, it's all just about like directing the actor on the emotions mm-hmm. and what you're going to do in the scene. But there is so much talk. I feel mm-hmm. like way more talk. About just logistics. Logistics. And, uh-huh. Yeah. Like we're in this room and we got – like you got to get over there. Right. And like e- even simple stuff. Right. You know? Yeah, like it's going to pick up a phone or whatever. Sometimes you have to have a conversation about it. Yeah, because there's continuity, and there's and yep. then the actors will be like, "My character wouldn't go. Or why would my character <laughs> subject subject themselves to that? Yeah, or what? You know." And they're right. And you got to think about usually, and you got to think, okay, you know, and it, it can like whether or not to pick up a phone can lead to a conversation about like what's your movie about? <laughs> right. <laughs> why but are we making this? It's such a hard <laughs> job as a director because. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about wearing hats, I mean, you know how many thousands of questions you're asked every day mm-hmm. on set and, you know, before you get to set and after you leave I set. think being a director is being good at answering questions as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's the key, isn't it? Yeah. You can't that's get big, hung up on that big stuff. part of it. Yeah. Because for one reason is, uh, especially on a low budget, you just got to get shit done quickly. Mm-hmm. But another big reason is you have to have the confidence. You can't seem too unsure about things. Well, you, you'll lose the crew. Yeah. You can't be unsure. Yeah. In fact, the opposite is also true. The more, the more sure you are, the more people are inspired and the more. Yeah. Um, so prep is just everything. Shot lists for me are, I shot list movies twice at least before really? I ever get, get up there. And I, yeah. And then do you throw it away and wing it or a little bit of both? Oh, yeah. A little bit of both. I mean, when you get into a situation, like there's a whole sequence in The Dark Red where I had I had designed about 20 shots to get this escape scene to happen. Mm-hmm. And we were about to lose our location. And Josh Wilcox, our producer, came up and said, hey, um, I, I know that time's been going fast because we've been trying to coordinate down in these caves and we can't even hear each other on the radios. And right. so we're losing time. And he's like, but that said, we after about an hour, we start paying this location three times what it costs right now. Right. And we really don't have it. <laughs> yeah. So we got to find a way to wrap this up. Uh-huh. And... I ended up designing because of that this one this oneer mm-hmm. all one shot where all that information that was in like ten different little pieces yeah. was all done in one big piece and it and made, did it turn out better it was one of the best things in the movie yeah 
Isn't that know. funny how that happens? So you've you're always got to be consolidating. You've always got to be open. Yeah. Limitations make you more creative. That's not, right. Not the other way around. Yeah. If a blank check is not the best thing in no, the world, sometimes uh-uh. I don't think. You're like, having said that, give me a blank yeah, check. Give me, yeah, give <laughs> me. Let me do what the fuck I want. People are going to love this insight, man. I appreciate all this stuff. Sure. So, um, all right. They fight in the ring, and then uh, he kills the uh, the guy sort of the, slightly anticlimactically right. with the nail in the back of the head. I feel like he could have worked that a little more. Well, I loved that. I mean, Really? I, yeah, it was really impactful. I mean, I was like, okay, here's what I gleaned from it. Maybe not as a boy, but watching it since, it's like I feel like Kurt Russell's snake is just like he's just – one time I saw this Rottweiler get in a fight with a Doberman. Mm-hmm. And geez. it was on the beach and like the Rottweiler – the Doberman was just going <laughs> barking, 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 barking. And the Rottweiler just calmly sat down on his haunches and waited. And when the moment was right, when the Rottweiler, when the uh, Doberman <laughs> was slightly distracted, the Rottweiler had him pinned like that. Was and it a real fight? Yeah, and the, the the owners went nuts, and they had to pull them off of yeah. each other, and people got hurt. And but I thought about that weird thing that that Rottweiler did. You know what I mean? It's Snake Plissken. It's Snake Plissken. <laughs> he's watching. He's waiting. And now, boom, boom. You're wow. Dead. That's what I thought. Anyway. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking, <laughs> a Rottweiler named Snake Plissken might be <laughs> the coolest move you could make in life. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Um, so Romero's death. Um, one of the great. Like there's so much scenery chewing mm-hmm. acting going on in this movie mm-hmm. because it is a bit of a B movie in, in all the right ways. Right. Like I don't think Com- Carpenter was ever like maybe pull it back a little. Right. He's just like go for it. Yeah. And when Romero finally gets stabbed, uh-huh. it's just such it's a, so big. Oh, it's so big <laughs> and great. He knew. He's like this is my moment. Yeah. You know? The exhale of all exhales. Oh, yeah. That's how he would die though. Yeah. Th- this character I think. Dramatically and Yeah. It didn't seem inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been one of the velvets. Um, they dump the glider. Uh, there is a bit of a um, non sequitur on the roof, which I read about when uh, they're on the roof of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And there's this – you can't even really – the choreography there is a little weird because mm-hmm. you're not even fully sure what's going on. Right. Um, and that's because there were some deleted scenes apparently. Really? Uh, yeah. Harry Dean Stanton calls out, you, you dirty redskins. Right. I'm like, what is he talking about? But there was this whole sub – not subplot, but – He does say that. There was a sequence uh, earlier that was cut where there was a band of Native American, um, like a gang uh-huh. of prisoners that sort of hung together. Oh, OK. And that's like who that was. Like warrior style? I think so. OK. And that's who that was on the roof trying to oh. dump the plane. So that's why I thought a little been, bit weird. There probably wasn't time for it. But if, there, if they could have developed more of the factions, the warrior factions in, in – in the prison. I kind of thought that too. That would be fun. Because The Warriors was a another big movie. Right. It uh, had just come out for, recently. For right? dudes like us growing up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sort of a, a <clears throat> bit of a similar concept too in some ways. Again, with the you – know, I remember a kid thinking New York was the most dangerous place on earth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At the, the time, the, 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 in the news it was. Oh, yeah. And, and the uh, – who were the, the dudes with the red bray? The uh, – Guardian Angels. Right. They were on all the TV shows right. and they were walking the streets, keeping right. it clean. And every movie that came out was vigilante movies. Yeah, vigilante movies. Yeah. And then eventually went to New York in the sort of early 90s. It's like, oh, this is, this this is, this is great. great. <laughs> yeah. And there's Marvel right there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I should have been watching, yeah. uh, you know, Woody Allen movies. Yeah. That's a different New York. Um, so they dump the glider. They make it to the bridge, uh, which we have already set up again with the raised stakes. He's so good mm-hmm. at that. 
um, <clears throat> with the the mines on the bridge, and the clock is down to like very scary few minutes. Close. Yeah. yeah. And so you know so they, they can't it, take their time. And so just to reiterate, the, the clock ticking down is because he has these micro explosives in his neck, <laughs> yeah, which is a which are going to great thing <laughs> explode his jugulars if he doesn't get get back in time. Yeah, like I couldn't. That's such a perfect mm-hmm. instead of like it's it'll explode your head off, mm-hmm. you know, which seems like the obvious thing to write. Mm-hmm. There was something about like when Lee Van Cleef says like you won't even notice it. You'll right. just make two tiny little tears. And you'll just bleed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was something just brilliant about right. that. I loved it. Disturbing as hell. Uh, so Ernest Borgnine, of course, uh, in true movie fashion, shows up at just the right moment in the cab. Yeah. He does that a few times. Yeah. In the movie. Well, that's his function. <laughs> yeah. You know, 100%. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's his function. Which, yeah. like in a Western, and, I guess, would And be the he same also thing. miraculously has the, yeah. the, the key. The tape. The tape. Yeah, they don't even explain that other than he was just – I guess he it's bargained all, for it. It's all in Harry Dean Stanton's performance. He's like, aha, see? Like, uh, what do you right. mean, see? Is that a sink <laughs> wink? What are we talking about here? He just implies like, see, things are working out. He did a few funny things <laughs> in that movie. He has that one part where he uh, he does that little grin to Maggie. Um, yeah. What, what was it? It was right after uh, – Because he, he figures it out, right? And he's like – That's right. It's like, yeah, he figures out the plane's on – unless he landed on top. Right. And he's like, ah. That was it. And yeah. he gives her a little quick grin. Again, that's sort of like a weirdly comic for this movie. Right. <laughs> but it works. <laughs> it's a big movie, man. <laughs> uh, so a big Snake, little movie. Snake takes this tape, which is key, um, and that's where you get the, the plant of the American bandstand on the other tape. Right. Which, you know, when you're – when you're a kid, you don't notice that at all, which is right. exactly how it should be. Which, again, might be some sort of – well, maybe not. I'm just thinking, maybe I'm stretching with the, like noir references, but yeah, – Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Uh, and then you get that great – that final great you know, bridge <clears throat> sequence <clears throat> where, where they're tearing across the bridge. These uh, pretty lo-fi bombs are going off, these mines. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, these days, it would be so over the top. Right. But it's probably more believable. Of how it would have been. They're quick. They're not slow-mo. Yeah, just, and it's boom. just like, boom, yeah. it's gone. Car gets cut perfectly in half. Oh, dude. <laughs> Which, you know. I have you... in here. Car gets cut perfectly <laughs> in half on my notes. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty neat. Uh-huh. I wonder what the deal is with that. Was it was it tongue-in-cheek again? Like, he blows a car in half. I don't think so. I think that the, the effects the... guys probably had yeah. their hands full and were like. <laughs> had a two-piece car? Yeah. They, yeah. It's probably harder to do an eight-piece car. Um, but the brain scene where he uh, he's killed like that that impacted me a little bit. He's blown sky high, mm-hmm. and you go really, left, yeah. left. <laughs> I think or dodge anyway. Anyway, I think the final thing was I said jog right. Yeah, and that's when he gets wasted. Right. Um, but I really felt like say what you want about Adrian Barbeau as an actor. Mm-hmm. Like I think she sold it in that scene. Her her love for brain. Yeah. brain yeah. Did yeah. you buy it? Yeah, I like Adrian Barbeau. I like Swamp. Was it Swamp Thing? Yeah. Yeah, I think she's, I mean, again. Cannonball Run? Fa- yeah. <laughs> again, fascination being an adolescent at the time. Sure. <laughs> exactly. With her. Um, but, yeah, I I don't know. I, I, I mean, all of those actors are like character actors in yeah. a way. They're all, they can do the thing. They're just really good actors. They can, you know. Yeah. They, they, they've, got, they've got it all. The wheels are turning in their mind, and uh-huh. all you got to do is film them, you know. Yeah, there wasn't a leading man. Like, Kurt Russell became a leading man right. because of this movie and a lot of others that followed. But mm-hmm. 
He wasn't a leading man at the time. No. In fact, they didn't want him at all. Yeah. yeah. I just, again, I can't imagine Chuck yeah. Morris in this movie. He would have screwed it up so bad. Um, Maggie fires seven shots from her revolver. I counted. Does she? <laughs> <laughs> you count gunshots? I don't. Oh, really? Did I you don't. ever? Um, I have a I th- hard time not doing it. I I did it in uh, I guess it was was it sudden impact with like uh-huh. oh right when he's like how I many fired bullets? six <laughs> yeah <laughs> did I fire six or only five right well did I punk or whatever <laughs> yeah. you feel lucky <laughs> which is where I still think that Kurt Russell got the voice from Clint I, mean, I think he acknowledged that even did he yeah the very sort of whispery gravelly thing yeah uh, yeah I have a hard time I mean that means you're getting lost in movies which is great I don't right. always do it but. Yeah. A lot of times I'm like, wait a minute. They're- I try really hard not to I, – you know, I got out of film school and I was like – I was so filled up 20 years or more, 30 years ago. I was so filled up with like, oh, film theory and this is how, you know, Kubrick does it. Yeah. This is this is the, the Hitchcock thing and like the lowing of the psychology of angles and all this shit. And then I had to get to a point where I was like, you know what? Just close your eyes and watch the movie in your head. Right. You know, and, and – Try to get as far away from that as possible. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you'll never be able to enjoy any other filmmakers ever again. Yeah. So the first time I watch a movie, I try. Sometimes I'll even drink a you know a bourbon, mm-hmm. or you know, or a couple beers just to just sure. to let myself go. Right. Definitely no weed because that makes me really hyper conscious of right. of the of number of bullets and shit. So I try to just be as much lost in the movie as possible. Yeah. And then if I need to go back and and, and look at it again for. All of the things. Sure. You know. Through weed eyes. <laughs> yeah. My, I have a funny story. My wife, um, I, this is true. One of the reasons I, I asked her to marry me uh-huh. is because I took her on one of our first dates to go see Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, great. And she fell asleep. Really? Yeah. That's and adorable. I, and I thought, I, you know, I was like, this is the one. This is the one. I don't need a film critic in my bed. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love it. The opposite of subverting expectation. I love it. That's what it's all about. Um, so, you know, we get that final scene where, the, where uh, the, the president is being hauled up and the Duke mm-hmm. shows up and kills uh, everybody that's going to haul Snake up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's a little lo-fi. Snake just sort right. of sneaks up behind him somehow. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, and flying burritos him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what yeah. happens. Uh, but Snake gets out and it's it's such a great ending because you get – he's the hero. Mm-hmm. But he also has won it in his own way by fucking them over in the end. Right. Yeah. It's – I the ending of that thing when – of. The, Escape from New York. When I when I saw him as a kid, I was like, "Hell yeah, he's a badass." Yeah. And he's like, "I don't care about you. Like, yeah. your whole world can go to shit." You know, and uh-huh. and do I need to look at it through a different lens as an older person? Going, oh wait, he just Maybe caused World War Three because he's because <laughs> the, the president is an asshole. <laughs> I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, Man, I <laughs> but at the time, it was <laughs> like, I mean, the, as far as like, I mean, it's a perfect comic book movie in a way. Yeah, you know, and it and if the, if the end is is this guy who's like so jaded with the system that might as well just torch the whole damn thing and start yeah. over, you know? I guess so. Anar- he's an anarchist yeah. at heart. Yeah. Did you ever see <laughs> Escape from L.A.? I did. I never saw it all the way through because yeah. it got such bad reviews and it, mm-hmm. this movie is so special to me. Right. But I did see a little bit enough 
to have one comment, <coughs> which mm-hmm. is this movie looked better mm-hmm. than the other one mm-hmm. years and years later. Right. Like the effects and everything I, look better. There's something that – yeah, the green screens are really obvious in, in Escape from L.A. I, there's something that – I don't know what happened and it's in the enigma of what I understand about John Carpenter, whether I'm right or wrong. I don't know but because I don't know what decisions led up to these things. But mm-hmm. at some point, I, I feel like even though they were tongue-in-cheek – Elements in all of his movies. Yeah. I feel like at some point after The Thing, like when I went and saw, I saw, um, I was so excited to see, um, what's the horror movie he made about the church? The um, Oh. Oh, I don't know. What was that called? Um, anyway, I, it's, the name's escaping me right now, but I, I went to see that movie and I was like, John Carpenter made a cool horror movie and it's got... Um, I think Alice Cooper is like this weird, crazy oh, wow. bomb at the beginning of the movie. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll remember it after this and beat myself up for not knowing the name of it. <laughs> um, anyway, so – and it's got Donald Pleasance in it as this priest. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. But it was – I it, I just saw his career like he, he – I think in a, in a way that was probably good for him. I think he he, he quit taking his movies as seriously. Yeah. Like I said, there was always tongue-in-cheek, but then at some point it just feels like he was like, I'm not taking any of this shit seriously. If anything, I'm going to make comedies. Right. And I, like, I think it culminated with They Live, which is one of the, my favorite movies. Yeah. Because it's completely – it's complete abandon, you know, of that stuff. It's just a – it's relishing and, and yeah. some absurdity. Um, but it it's always still got that message. Right. That straight, you know, anti-authoritarian – you know, fuck the system message. I think that's who he is. He's yeah. he's, a, he's a bit of a maverick. <laughs> yeah. And he's always sort of, I think, like an Altman mm-hmm. uh, and other filmmakers kind of hated the, the system. Right. That he has to work within. Right. Um, yeah, like a true true genius and like great person. Yeah. And so I don't know, like it got to the point where I was like, oh, if Carpenter's going to make a movie, I wonder if it's going to be – you know, after Escape from New York or Escape from L.A., I was like, ah, shit, I don't know if I can – He's wanna... made some really bad movies too. That's what's <laughs> yeah. so interesting. Yeah. yeah, He's like he's made some brilliant movies and he's made some fucking terrible movies. Right. Uh, like was it Mission to Mars? Did he make that? Yeah. It was awful. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, I kind of respect that in a weird way that – because that means he's tr- he's doing interesting well, things. There's a thing too work. that I've learned as a, as a filmmaker myself is that – it, I used to just be so damned opinionated coming out of film school and like, I think this movie's great and sure. I think this movie sucks and this so critical. Right. And over the years of making movies, I'm like, and I get the reviews. I've gotten plenty of great five-star reviews that uh-huh. are really rewarding to read. And then I've gotten reviews that are just like, you know, and the, the vault was just pan. Like everybody hated the vault. Really? Critically, it was, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's painful. And sure. you get to point, and, and the, the, the reviewers, the critics, they all... The the director's the one with the bomb strapped to his chest. It's right. Everything's the director. It's like there's never any consideration of like, oh, well, maybe he, he had to make it this way. Maybe he didn't control it yet. Maybe the, the right. ending was, you know. So many things. It's always something that the director decided or didn't decide to do. And it's yeah. always, you know, the failings of the director. And, I, and so I guess over the years I've gotten to where I'm like, you know what? The budget constraints and things we try to make these awesome movies. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they fucking don't. Right. But if you're if you're at least if you're at least pushing past the system and not just doing formulaic shit because you know it would right. more likely work. Yeah, yeah. 
then kudos. Agree, 1,000%. So, yeah, that's a great statement. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so, and a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. All right, buddy, we finished with five questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's the first movie you remember seeing in a theater? Um, that would be the pop culture worldwide phenomenon Star Wars. Really? First mm-hmm. one? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I remember. It was dis- one of my first. I remember distinct. It might have. I thought it was maybe like Return to Witch Mountain, but I think that came out later. Mm, I it, saw those Witch Mountain movies. <laughs> Escape from Witch Mountain. I, I mean, the first one I actually saw was in a, I, my parents t- went, took me to see Jaws in a drive-in theater, but I don't remember it because I was a baby. My One of my first remembrances is a drive-in too, uh, Blazing Saddles at the drive-in. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I just remember nice. being super, super young and uh-huh. seeing the horse get knocked out. And being uh, and getting punched bad. out and just being like, what? Yeah. And then but like falling asleep in the station wagon <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah, it was it was Star Wars. And I remember distinctly going – I remember my dad getting frustrated because I was not getting my shoes on. Mm-hmm. And Well, you know that pain now. <laughs> yeah. Getting those goddamn shoes <laughs> getting on. Getting the goddamn kids ready. <laughs> and, um, and I hear my dad's voice. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, what <laughs> I know. So, it's the worst. But I um, – yeah, and I just that I remember trying to get to the movie. I remember getting in there late as the movie had already started, mm-hmm. and I remember the kids behind me were much older than us because I was maybe five or six. I was six years old. Yeah, we would have been five and six. So, uh, and the kids behind me were yakking about, "Wait till Darth. That's Darth Vader. Darth Vader's the." And he was talking about Darth Vader. He was talking all the way through the movie, and I was like, "What? Who's Darth Vader? Am I supposed to? <laughs> is this a thing? I'm supposed to? What am I? Oh, okay." And also shut up. <laughs> yeah. And also shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. So, and I remember those things. But it was – I can't think of any other movie that I saw earlier. I thought it was maybe Watership Down, but that was later too. So, Yeah, that might have been my first too. <clears throat> uh, first R-rated movie you ever saw at home or wherever. Um, again, my dad would take us and sneak us into the theater. So was or it not Alien? Sneak, but he would, it was either Alien or The Life of Brian. Oh, Wow. Because that year I we he did it to he took us into a couple of movies. And my brother, Brian. thank God, my brother's the older and and he's he's a he's a he's kind of an interesting genius. Uh-huh. He's a comic book artist and he's oh cool. He's a genius in weird, predictive ways. He's always in tune and like he gave me and I was in when I was in college. He gave me a, a mixtape that was basically the Pulp Fiction soundtrack <laughs> about two years before Pulp Fiction. Was he came always out. slightly ahead of the curve? Always slightly ahead of the curve. That's so cool. So he insisted that we go see Life of Brian. He knew. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody in the theater. He was right. Yeah. Wow, that's so, great. Yeah. Uh, do you walk out of a bad movie? Um, I never have. I remember, I remember um, 
wanting to walk out of dances or yeah, dances with, with wolves because mm-hmm. I was right at the point when I was like, oh, I can see the mechanism here. I was just a point in my life when mm-hmm. I was like, it all felt like all of that John Barry music felt really false. And I was like, why is there a white hero in this yeah. Indian world? And I, and I just was getting, I was just becoming political, I guess. Right. And I was like, why do we need a white hero here? And oh, what is it? interesting. You know, and, and I've got, so that was I got mad about it. moments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, um, and I, and I've sat in lots of, like I, I was in Reservoir Dogs in the theater in college and, Everybody walked out. Really? Everybody fucking walked out. Wow. And I was like, come on. It's not that bad. Wow. It's just a lot of blood and ears getting cut off, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A I lot of so. torture. and Yeah. But people were couldn't in, – in the movie at the time when Reservoir Dogs came out, it was – there was articles about people walking out of the theater because huh. it was too violent. See, I saw that on VHS. Too, too my, gritty. My friend. Uh, it was one of those movies that you had to tell someone about. Yeah. And my friend Jason in college was like, oh, dude, you're, you're coming over tonight. I'm getting clay. Oh, that's getting awesome. Brett. We're all coming over. I got this movie that I saw, and you know they spend half the movie watching you, and, and like your reaction to the movie that <laughs> yeah. you love so much. Oh, that's so cool. Life changing. <clears throat> uh, let me see here. Number four, I will. I tailor to the guest. So I'm going to say, what movie? What movie do you wish that you had been able to be on set for in any capacity? Just so you were there while it was being made, and you could witness it happen. That's a cool question. Um, hmm. I'm really putting you on the That's spot. Tough. Too. <laughs> uh, all of them? Yeah, because I mean, it's kind of what is your favorite movie, uh-huh. but it's also too like I mean, how great would it have been to have been on the set of this? I, right, uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, good answer. Um, just because of the just watching the acting. I mean, I love. Yeah. I mean, part of my background, other than. Doing, I kind of came up doing lots of different hats in the film world. And, uh-huh. But one thing I noticed that a lot of directors who understood camera and stuff, which I had a love for like camera angles, but they they neglected the acting. Mm-hmm. They didn't seem to understand or want to be a part of like how to talk to an actor. And mm-hmm. so I spent a lot of time training as an actor and trying to understand mm-hmm. that stuff. So I came to love like um, – you know, and I was looking at Mammoth and how weird that was as an acting process or yeah. it's controversial, I guess it was. But, yeah, so I don't I don't know. I just like watching these actors and Jack Lemmon yes. work a damn scene uh-huh. f- with all the stakes and all of the tactics. Right. And to watch them do it. I know it's almost like sitting in on a stage play, but. Dude, that, that's a great answer you know, because, so. um, yeah, because it, it's not like, oh, I would love to see this huge action sequence filmed or been on the set of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like. That's a really good answer because that's – you wanted to be – to see uh, on sitting in an office how you get that much out of an actor yeah. sitting at a desk. It's, you know, it's all about these – it's all about the relationships between the actors. Yeah. You know? if, if the scene isn't about the other person that you're in the scene with, mm-hmm. there's some, something's going to be missing. Yeah. And so watching those masters, Jack Lemmon, for God's sakes. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, and, and even just you know, Pacino and all those guys just pack. Alec like, Baldwin you, is a throwaway in that you movie. Just, yeah. Can you just can you can you? you know, I don't uh, to be a fly on the wall. In yeah. That, in that room would just be like totally, totally. Yeah. Great answer. Uh, and then finally, movie going one hundred and one. Uh, just very nuts and bolts. Where do you sit? What's your movie ritual like? Do you eat food? Oh, you want to go to the theater? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so my mom trained me <laughs> when I was a kid. 
We would go to movies every Christmas Eve. Oh, nice. You know, like Superman, we went and saw. Uh-huh. And we'd go to these big Christmas movies. Um, do you still do that? I try to. I try to get Caroline and, you know, with the kids, it's going to have to I'm sure. gonna start it up with the kids again. But, cool. uh, yeah, there's always the big Christmas one. And it's like it was became a, 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 a Christmas ritual for uh-huh. us. But anytime we would go to the movies, my mom would pop the popcorn with coconut oil and bag it and stick it in this huge purse. <laughs> my mom did the same thing, dude. <laughs> and we'd come in with our own popcorn. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I like, to, I like to make the popcorn and bring it. Oh, you still do that? Yeah. <laughs> Why pay for their shit? I love it. I, I, and I feel bad about that because theaters, that's how they make their money. That's how they make their money. <laughs> Dan, the concessions. Oh, that's all right. But uh, I've I've been bad with movies my whole life, sneaking into them and yeah, I used to do some sneaking of that too. into like I would go and buy a movie for one a ticket for one movie and go into another movie. Yeah, we used to call that the buy one get one free. Yeah, it's terrible and it's, terrible. It's stealing. It's stealing. It's thievery. <laughs> uh, bringing in my own, you know. And these days I'll pack in my own, you know, beer or whatever. Right. Stupid. <laughs> I'm not broke. It's come on. Well, I am, but well, I, I get it. It's part of that just thing that you did when you were young. Yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. And I I mean, you know, the best movie experiences I've ever had were either skipping school uh-huh. and going to something my buddy and I skipped school to go see The Terminator. Nice. Um either skipping school to go see a movie or these days it's just playing hooky and right. I'll just go by myself and like Caroline doesn't know how many movies I've seen in yeah. the last year. Emily gets some, so mad at me. I'm like, when she finds out that. Like, how was work today? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> how are the kids? I know the kids, man. <laughs> Emily gets so mad when she knows I snuck a movie. Uh-huh. She's like, just tell me. <laughs> Scotty and I will go. He'll meet me. He'll, he's my partner in crime. Oh, cool. So Scott Epolito. So we'll meet. Oh, him nice. For, for matinees, maybe we'll see. A, How's see Scott doing? Day. He's doing great. That's cool. We're doing a film noir series in here. So he's, oh, awesome. We talked about. Uh, the third man, and then he's coming in next week for Brick. Oh, sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, maybe we can do this again. I'd love to. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thanks, man. (laughs) All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We could really talk about movies for a long time. I'm going to get Dan in here again. I think he might be a good recurring guest, uh, intelligent, thoughtful uh, reviewer of films and film junkie. And that's those are the best guests always. So we we went at it for a couple of hours here on Escape from New York. And uh, it was really cool to hear the insight on directing and his process. And um, I hope you guys got a lot out of that as well. I, I imagine you did. So I had fun. Dan had fun. I hope we can do it again. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you next Friday. Have a great weekend. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, Where His Music Comes From, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so, and a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your child. From watching their soccer game in the pouring rain to soothing a crying baby at 4 a.m. You love your kids. So love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Car seats reduce fatal injury by 54 to 71% for toddlers and infants. Car crashes are a leading cause of death for children under 13, but when used correctly, safety restraints can dramatically reduce the risk of fatality or injury. It's critical that every trip, every time children are in the right seat for their age and size, and that children under 13 years of age are always buckled up in the back seat. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat to learn more. This message is brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.